welcome to The Lux Files, a podcast for occultists about occultists. I'm your host, Sean, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Be sure to subscribe to The Lux Files wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on all the new episodes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 22 of The Lux Files. I am with witch, author, ritualist, and whiskey enthusiast, Jason Mankey. Hello, Jason. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Thanks uh, it's for a pleasure. No whiskey in this coffee cup for anyone oh. wondering. It's too, it's too <laughs> early here on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah, maybe a little too early for you. It's what, 11 o'clock there? Yeah, which isn't like terrible early. I got up at seven, but you know, it's still too early for whiskey. Well, I guess I'll, I'll keep my coffee pot right there, though. There you go. There you go. So how are things? Things are okay. Things are good. Uh, kind of between projects, which is nice. Mm, yeah. Yeah, because you just released a book. I did, but books take so long to get published that I have just finished. That was my seventh that just came out in June. Since then, I've turned in the eighth book and the ninth book, which just got turned in. Jeez. So it's, sometimes it's hard to keep up with like what's actually going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. It is what it is. Yeah, yeah. What make, oh, you know, I'll actually, I'll save that question uh, for kind of when we get there, we'll, we'll kind of go through your life chronologically. So I don't want to skip um, too far ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to ask like, what makes someone, you know, especially in, in the occult world, um, you know, whether they're a, a witch, uh, a magician, like whatever, you know, one day be like, oh, you know what? Like, I need to write a book. Um, so I'm curious, I'll be, I'm curious I'll, about what your answer to that's gonna, gonna be. But um, yeah, let's not skip too, too far ahead. So for all the regular listeners of my podcast kind of know the format um, of each episode like we basically um talk about you know the the life the experience of you know of each guest and i always like to start because this is one of the things i'm most curious about with with people that you know seminal moment or perhaps you know series of events that kind of set each person on their spiritual or or magical path so um so yeah, so that's always a great place to start that, that, you know, um, cause I, most of my guests it's, you know, it's something that happened in childhood and it's just always fascinating to hear those, you know, those stories about X person when they were a kid and how they kind of wrap their heads around interesting experiences. You know, I don't really know like what the exact moment was because a couple of different ways I can always go with these stories. Mm -hmm. I will say that in the summer between the seventh and eighth grade, I picked up a Sybil Leak book. And for people who aren't familiar with Sybil Leak, she was a very famous witch in first in England and then the United States in the seventies and eighties. And our library had a bunch of Sybil Leak books like on a spinner rack. And I think I got How to Cast Your Own Spell was the name of the book. Cause I'd always been interested in witchcraft and cryptozoology and ufos and ghosts if it was weird i was the one reading it and fascinated by it and like really obsessed with it so i got this witchcraft book and i didn't really read it 
and I checked it out, checked out like seven or eight other books and I couldn't find a couple of them. My father was getting very angry and impatient with me, like find the books. And so I flipped through the witchcraft book and there was a spell to find a lost item. So I cast the spell and it worked. And you would think I would be like, oh, I'm gonna be a witch the rest of my life. Instead, I was horrified and frightened and scared. Oh. <laughs> Happy to take the book back to the library and then didn't really think about it again for a while, right? But I remember that moment where that spell worked. In the ninth grade, I met, I built a temple out of clay. It was just like a little art project. But I thought that if I made a temple to Aphrodite, I would have a girlfriend, you know, because I was very angsty. It didn't really quite work, but I did build the Aphrodite temple. So it was like this pagan gene within me. Right. And then when I was 21, I read a book called Celtic Magic by DJ Conway, which uh, is not a particularly good book by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. I was very much into the band Led Zeppelin and their lead singer, Robert Plant, was obsessed with Celtic mythology. So I thought if I read Celtic Magic, I would better understand him. However, it was really just kind of a book about Wicca, dressed up like Wicca was Celtic. Right. And, but it resonated with me. And that was really the beginning within two days it was like whispering prayers to the goddess and stuff. And mm. I think we all, yeah, I think we all either had or read Celtic Magic by DJ Conway. I actually still have it on my bookshelf because I mean, I don't throw out books. I don't give them away. Like I, I keep all of my books. So I literally have that book um, from the 90s, like when it, when it came out. And it's funny because I also... Uh, bought her Norse magic oh. book, which oh. is basically like if you if you read the books separately and you're not aware of either one, um, even though we as you know more experienced adults recognize that that the the book isn't about Celtic Celtic magic, the book isn't about Norse magic, but it, it's still you know it is what it is. But when you have the two together, it's almost like. You, she took like the template of one book and then just switched everything Celtic to everything Norse basically. And it's like, yeah, so, you know, maybe not the best books, but I think we've all been, you know, inspired by that Celtic magic book and it's okay. I will say one thing about DJ Conway though. I mean, the history in those books is really bad, mm. um, but she was a really good writer. Like, you know, the, her prose is very good. Yeah. She can express ideas succinctly and stuff. So they're good books in some ways. Just don't, like, don't quote them for a like a paper or anything. Yeah, and exactly, exactly. Her rituals were pretty good, and I still use a lot of the language from Celtic magic in my own rituals mm -hmm. because it was the first thing I was ever exposed to. So it's kind of all floating around in my head, and I'll find myself, like, using different phrases and stuff that, I first encountered in one of her books. So I don't yeah, like to- absolutely. She has a book, um, Flying Without a Broom, that I actually uh, really like. Um, you know, it's like astral traveling and whatnot. And um, one thing about her writing is she's very inspiring. Like, you know, her, her writing makes you dream and wonder and, you know, inspires you to explore this and 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 learn and and go deeper and 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 whatnot so you know there's value there and she had a huge impact on 
especially those of us who kind of came of age in the 90s, right? Yeah. I mean, huge impact. And, yeah. you know, it's easy to kind of make fun of her now and things, but she was a gateway for a lot of us. She friended me on Facebook before she passed away a few years ago. And it was like one of the coolest moments of my entire life, right? I didn't send her a friend request. DJ Conway sent me a friend request, you know? Whoa. Yeah. I'm that's, still a fan. I'm still like a 18 year old fanboy in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of cool. Um, I, I definitely would have liked to have known her as a person. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I didn't really feel like I ever really got to know her. She didn't post a whole lot, and she was really different than a lot of those other writers of that era. I mean, I remember seeing Silver Raven Wolf in Lansing, Michigan, where I lived at the time. Ray Buckland came and came and visited us once. I uh, met Edane McCoy. I mean, a lot of those writers from that era traveled and did mm -hmm. festivals and she really wasn't one of them. You yeah. Know, she never saw her at like a campground or anything or at a psychic fair. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Kind of like whoosh mystical in her own way. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. That's kind of, you know, uh, before the age of social media and putting yourself out there and, you know, doing your, your you know, own kind of marketing of being always like in everyone's face because you're plastered all over social media. Doing the exact opposite, I think, kind of works really well or, you know, back then, because there was that kind of mystique, because you never saw her, and she was never talked about, um, you know, in, in gossipy ways, the way like Silver Ravenwolf was, was talked about and, and picked apart and criticized and whatnot, you know, um, because she, she wasn't, you know, in like, she wasn't traveling all over the place. And, you know, so there's that, there was that mystique about her. I also think that we are very good at eating our own. So Silver oh, Raven sure. was popular, right? So there has to be a backlash against her for being popular. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and she was just such a huge presence in the nineties, you know, as, as a Gen X pagan to ride a silver broomstick was probably the book that I reread the most. Okay. You know, it has the most like Dorito stains on the pages. It was the book I read and reread the most. And a lot of my friends were the same way. But by the end of the decade, you know, this person who had been so popular now was kind of like, well, she wrote Teen Witch, so she's terrible, right? And it had just really kind of turned on a dime. And now it's kind of turning back again. Uh, there are a couple of people who are very, you know, loud supporters of silver in uh, social media and say nice things about her yeah I'm, not, I'm loud but i do say nice things about her just because i've realized now like how impactful she was yeah absolutely i mean you know yeah there's some questionable things in her books but you can also say that about most occult authors and you know if you're you know if you're going to criticize every author for every tiniest detail that's you know slightly questionable there's not going to be a lot of authors out there that are quote-unquote reputable reputable and you're certainly not gonna get any book from the 90s right i mean there were so many problems with so many books in the 90s and sometimes it's really not the fault of the author there was like a lack of information in the 90s yeah it wasn't like today where you can just go online and find almost anything that you want 
you would, you know, you had to like go to a library, you had to really hunt for books, you had to really search for things. And also there just really weren't that many books available. Yeah. Right. So when somebody gets something wrong in a book from the eighties and nineties, they're not stupid. You know, they're, they're not trying to trick somebody. It's just that nobody knew any better. Yeah. Right? And I mean, there, there's so much academic work about, um, you know, like the history of the, uh, the witch hunts and, you know, witchcraft, you know, through early modern Europe and, you know, going back farther into the, you know, ancient pagan traditions, like there's so much more scholarship now because, you know, that 90s era of, of occult books showed that there was an interest in, in that field. There was no, like, no, no one's going to be writing about, like, on an academic level of, of stuff that no one cares about, you know what I mean? And you're seeing all of this interest, all of this growth in, you know, witchcraft and Wicca and supposed old traditions, old pagan traditions that have survived throughout the centuries. You're, you're going to get academics be like, um, is that really a thing? Let's find out. Let's research this and let's write about it. You know, so what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Like, do you have solid academic um, um, information first, or do you have, you know, sort of like a pseudo oral history, you know, coming out of the, the neo-pagan movement first, like which comes first, which follows? You know, we're pretty uh, lucky though now. I mean, we live in an age of triumph of the moon, right? Which was like the first big modern academic work. And I remember when the first academic books started to slip in in the mid nineties. And that's really great. But what's most important I think about witchcraft stuff is not whether or not it's really factually accurate is does it work for you? And yeah. right, if it works for you. That's really what's the most important. Doesn't, doesn't matter if what you're saying is really centuries old or truly derives from some sort of ancient tradition that was hidden through the centuries. As long as it works, it's all good. Exactly, exactly. Because, I mean, if that was the bar, you know, um, authenticity through um, the age of a thing, none of us, none of us, Golden Dawn, Thelemite, like none of us would be doing magic. No, I mean, because look, we just don't have every, everything doesn't survive like we want it to, yeah. right? Even things with a lot of paper trail, like the Golden Dawn, I mean, there are still gaps in what, we wish that we really knew about the golden dawn sometimes and yeah it, it's hard and then of course especially ancient paganism there are so many gaps even gods that are well attested to like the greek gods we still don't know nearly as much about them as we would like and how they were worshipped there's still never been like this book of the rites of the greeks right from the year 400 bce from athens that would have been amazing but it doesn't exist exactly exactly so we're doing our best and you know those 90s writers did their best and uh to their credit they produced a great generation of occultists and uh so thank you because i mean i you know my first books i was 14 that would have been 92 so that whole 90s era of of occult publishing was my 
was my training ground, you know? And it was a glorious era too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know a lot of those books haven't held up, but it was still this era of like the super mega bookstore, right? And in the United States, that was Barnes and Noble. You know, nothing like that had existed before the 90s. And all of a sudden they're cropping up everywhere. And you can go to these big bookstores and they have books on Wicca and paganism and magic. And before that, bookstores were kind of limited to small mom and pop stores, which are great, but also B. Dalton or Walden Books, which were mall stores. So they were really small. Yeah. Those would have seven books in the occult section. Yeah. Maybe. Right. And some of those were books like how to heal with color. I mean, they were only sort of marginally tied to what we do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, same here. We had Kohl's, which are like mall bookstores, so they're relatively small. And then Chapters, which is now called Indigo, which is like the big box stores. But I had, uh, in the 90s, I just, you know, living in in, here in Thunder Bay, you know, because it's small city we're only 100,000 people uh I only had Kohl's but they had a remarkably remarkably vast diverse um section on on witchcraft and magic and the occult and huge huge section on like with um Dungeons and Dragons um uh gaming and the novels but the gaming was just huge and massive and so those two things there Dungeons and Dragons and and witchcraft got them both at Kohl's and basically you know that explains my entire life for me one of the big moments of the 90s is I went to school in Missouri in college at a city called Cape Girardeau 30,000 people but eventually somebody had bought had built like a big bookstore it was a chain but I can't remember the name of the chain and they had magazines and they carried pagan magazines which was like this mind-blowing experience for me like here's this thing I've been doing for a year and now I could read letters from people that they wrote six months ago which at the time seems pretty current back then yeah yeah I read their letters and be a part of this community and that was like really like whoa that that was a big moment for me so up to then you know like you're so you had that, you know, you you tried that, you know, t- uh, what was it? Uh, find a lost item spell, which freaked you out because it worked. Um, what? Well, actually, let's touch on that for a second. So you get freaked out because the spell worked. Like, what was it that freaked you out? So I lived in the American South. So I lived outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Right. And, you know, we're taught to go to church and love Jesus and the Bible. So you know, having magic work. And I remember that spell said, oh, triple goddess in it, you know, which was, wow. I mean, that was subversive saying, oh, triple goddess. So yeah, I mean, that as a kid, that was kind of my inclination that, whoa, this is a little, this is a little surprising, right? And, and I think it's also because I felt something, right? There was like this jolt of energy when I did the spell. I remember when I said, oh, triple goddess, I felt something there, like this ancient power kind of like hovering over me and I don't think I was ready for it yet and so it kind of scared me a little bit okay but not scared you in in like a oh this must be evil satanic like it, it wasn't like that that scared you it was just no not, no, not like that okay. and I just don't think I was ready and yeah yeah, yeah. so I was kind of like surprised that the spell worked and maybe just not ready for magic yet yeah which I mean yeah, you were how old, you said? 
13 probably it's okay to not be ready for magic at the age of 13 you know what i, I mean ready for very much of anything at the exactly age of exactly so when you got back into magic so you're in college you you're talking about like this magazine and discovering other people so up till then like you like you with none of your friends were like oh let's do this ritual or anything like that like growing up you know as teenagers like it really was that separation from that 13 year old jason doing that spell that freaked you out to you know more of a adult age so i was always kind of the weird kid right so i remember on a church retreat once somebody said let's have a seance jason you should lead the seance right i was always that one but i don't think anyone ever thought like well he's gonna become a witch right yeah you know there's one thing to talk to you know somebody's dead grandpa and then it's another thing to practice witchcraft entirely so i mean i wasn't quite completely divorced from it i was still interested in things i was still reading you know different sorts of books and stuff and every once like an you know like i'd read about alistair crowley or something i wasn't completely divorced from it but i was not reading any books from contemporary witches mm -hmm. like, like you know, by that point, I'm kind of exclusively reading books from my high school library, and they just didn't exist there, or I just couldn't find them. But it's much more likely that they didn't exist. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I was a little divorced from it. Um, I was going through a mall in downtown St. Louis, and there was a New Age store at this mall, and that's where I found Celtic magic. So it was just sort of a, you know, it happened to be right in front of my face. Also, back then, that book was $3.95, which was really useful because I had no money. So $5 bought that book for me. Had it been $10, maybe I wouldn't be talking to you today. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, I miss low prices on everything. Uh, there was It was also a big time in my life, though, because I was changing about what I believed about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I'd grown up in the South, because I was president of my church youth group and that kind of thing, I was a conservative Republican, you know, when I was 19 or 20. Right. And I began to see that that was not how I wanted to be and not who I was. And I was, like, you know, horrified by the way that party and especially that kind of brand of Christianity, though Method, and I was a Methodist, Methodists are usually pretty wishy-washy good, you know, when it comes to where they are on the Christian spectrum, but a lot of my Christian friends, you know, gay people are bad and stuff, and I had a gay brother, and I was like, I can't, I can't be down with that. Yeah. Uh, so I found witchcraft while I was having these changes in my life, in this transition from being a conservative to being a flaming liberal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it was and, and it aligned with my values in a way that Christianity was not going to align with my values. Right, right. So did you see it sort of, um, you know, like I, even though like my, my family wasn't really overly religious, I mean, I did grow up Roman Catholic and it was in, you know, looking back on my life, I understand how important, you know, um, spirituality is to me has been my entire life even when I was younger a teenager and whatnot so I think finding something that I was able to transition transition from 
you know, Roman Catholicism to, you know, Wicca without, you know, any sort of, I don't know how to describe it, without without any gap in between, you know, it just, I, I think being able to go from one to the other, I wasn't without, you know, spirituality or, or any sort of belief in God or gods, I think was really valuable and important to my growth and my development. Um, so same thing with you in a sense, like you didn't, you didn't go through this period, you know, like so when you were changing from like this conservative Christian into a liberal, you know, with the witchcraft, like it was just like a, a gradual smooth transition basically. I think it was. I mean, just because I saw how my politics were changing and I'd always had problems with Christianity, you know, even when I was practicing it because mm -hmm. I did not like the idea of, well, if you've never, if you've never like experienced Jesus, you're going straight to hell. Right. And I could never get a straight answer about that. I'd be like, what if you lived on an Island and you never were, you know, shown anything about Jesus. You never had a Bible. No one ever said the name Jesus. Would you be going to hell? And they'd be like, well, yes. And I'd be like, well, that's dumb, right? That's like really dumb religion. Uh, so I'd always had some issues, I mean, you know, but I was a religious person. I like deity. I like spirituality. That kind of thing is important to me. What Wicked was, wasn't so much a complete replacement. It was a supplement, right? Instead of one thing, now I could have a thousand things, right? I remember my first prayer you know, my grandmother had taught me, you know, uh, Lord, keep us safe this night, secure from all our fears. And the first time I kind of did like my Wiccan version of it, I was like, Lord and lady, keep us safe this night, right? That was like a big step for me, right? Like praying to this goddess figure, but it felt natural, you know? And so it, yeah, it was, an, it was a pretty smooth transition in a lot of ways. Yeah. And a lot of the trappings are all the same too, which helps, right? I mean, you can still do Halloween. You can basically still do Christmas. You know, you can decorate for Easter if you want. I mean, you don't have to sacrifice all of those things when you move from a Christian tradition to a pagan tradition. Yeah, They're still there. Also, you're never like forced to renounce anything, right? You don't have to go, well, I'm going to spit on this Bible or something. We, we don't do that. You know, or I'm now turning my back on Christianity forever. You know, there's no ritual like that. Yeah. My, my wife had, was Catholic and she had mostly good experiences in the church. You know, and I know a lot of people have bad experiences and those are, you know, and I understand that, but we didn't have terrible experiences. Uh, so I love that I don't have to discount everything necessarily. Right. It's just a part of my progression. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, it always baffles me. And I mean, you know, I get it, um, you know, the, the way, you know, Christianity is, Catholicism and whatnot, where you have to renounce and, you know, if you want to be a Catholic, you have to renounce your Judaism or whatever you are. And it just... It, it, it makes no sense. It, it, it makes, I, I get it. You know, I, I get why they, you know, um, some of these religions do it. Uh, but I, but at the same time, I don't get it. Like, it doesn't make any sense. 
Because when am I really renouncing? Like, I'm just saying the words like, okay, I renounce X. Well, you don't know if I mean it or not. Right. It could mean absolutely nothing to you, right? It's just something you say. Yeah. Uh, One of the things about the 90s, too, is it was there was a lot of sort of new agey influence especially in paganism at the Mm -hmm. time and there were a lot of books that were like well you know you could be a christian and a pagan or a christian and a and a a witch or a wiccan or something right i remember one book was all the breakdowns of the different pantheons that you could choose as a wiccan you know there was like egyptian and then celtic and then there was christian in this book right and so i mean those kind of things made the transition so much easier like you could kind of go witch light for a while yeah do jesus stuff if you needed to and now though people are like no no you can't be a christian and a witch or whatever and i'm like of course you can i mean yeah. it doesn't always work i mean you can't go to the baptist church and probably <laughs> do both but i'm sure you could find a way of course and you know stuff like that um it does you can't be christian and a witch really like so you don't read history right at all this is such a long history of magic in every religious tradition yeah uh, by all kinds of practitioners and a lot of the people that we would call cunning folk today you know i'm certain that they identified as christians Mm -hmm. while they were practicing magic right a lot of times today we go well they were witches and in a sense i think that's probably true but that's not how they would have identified themselves. Yeah. Or they would have put a disclaimer on it. Like I am a white witch, you know, yeah. that was kind of a common one, but still their religious practice would have been, I'm going to go down to the Baptist church. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, where did we leave, leave off? You can old college, your, your yeah. college age at this point. And um you i'm trying to remember um did you name the magazine or did you just say pagan magazine i just said a pagan magazine, pagan magazine. I, think, yeah. I think the first one i read was the green egg i thought right. really that was the one uh, but there were four or five different ones during that period of time that you could get at various bookstores green egg was usually the best of the magazines it had more yeah. articles had some really terrific artwork in it in a lot of places the first episode, the first issue I got was on Hellenic poly, like Hellenic paganism. So there was a guy like in a Greek warrior outfit on the cover of that magazine. And I will say, like, I've gone back and reread it now, like over a decade later. And now it makes a lot more sense to me than it did as a kid. Yeah. It, some of it was a little advanced for me. Yeah. Like, yeah. Six Scott Cunningham books or whatever. Yeah. But was this- was that kind of like the first instant where you realize like, you know, there's, there's this whole world out there, this whole community of people kind of like me, I need to find them? Or was it just like a point of interest? Like, oh, I didn't realize there was people out there. How interesting. You know, it inspired me to try to find some of them, but where I lived without a car in that town of 30,000 people, there really weren't a whole lot of options. I would run into people like, you know, they might see my books and go, oh, that's great that you're practicing this, you know, and, and then kind of hint that they were doing it too, right. but it never got to the point where we were doing things together okay, right? or that it was more than maybe just something that they had an interest in. 
it never we you know and then every once in a while you'd meet somebody you know like i had lived in a big house with a bunch of people and all my friends were like yeah yeah he's a witch now right and this one guy came over and he's like oh here you're the house witch no <laughs> i'm a warlord and i was like what 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 the hell does that mean right i mean you just kind of see like glimp glimmers of it right and uh i moved to michigan and that's when it began to change I found a friend, I found somebody who lived nearby in the pages of a magazine, or I think he wrote me because I'd written in a magazine and included my address. Then I get this letter from this guy, like, I see that you live within an hour of me. Uh, would you like to meet for coffee? And that was my first pagan friend named Dwayne. And then a few months later, a group started at Michigan State University called Green Spiral, which was our going to be our local pagan group. And so I started going to that. And that's when I really kind of became a part of a community. Did my first rituals with other people and really got to spend time with other people who identified as pagans or witches or druids. It was, it was a pretty big deal. It's where I met my wife, Ari. Like that. Oh, wow. Okay. That group had a huge impact on me. Like my first group rituals were with those people. And as I said, that's where I met Ari. Uh, yeah, huge. Looking back on that time, do you see anything? How long were you with that group ish? In some way or another, like over 10 years, because every, all of us lived there. Like a lot of us went to school and then we stayed in town. Okay. And so we didn't leave and we just kept going to the group. And there wasn't an equivalent in the area. There wasn't a group like out of a UU church or anything. So that college student group became a group that a lot of adults in the community went to. Okay. It was just a, like a good foot in the door, you know, and eventually, you know, you become an advisor to the next generation of kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But looking back on that time in that group, do you, do you see it as sort of informing your, your practice currently, like how, how seminal was that group to what you do now or have you evolved you know away from what you guys did back then there's certainly some evolution but so when i joined that group i was like 22 or 23 so i was a little older like by mm -hmm. three or four years than most people in it so yeah. because i was older they would say jason why don't you write the ritual jason why don't you do this so all of a sudden, like I'm writing rituals for groups, having never written a group ritual before. And so to me, it was like boot camp, right? I, you know, so much of what I do now, I learned in two or three years of being with that group because I had to do these things because nobody else was going to do them. And like how I write rituals still very much influenced by those couple of uh, first years. Also, one of the things I loved about living in Lansing, Michigan and being in a pagan group, since it was a small town, like 100 Lansing, like the whole area around it, maybe 200,000 people, you know, two hours from Detroit. So we're not quite close enough to just drive to that bigger city. Mm -hmm. There weren't a lot of us. So the Druids hung out with the witches who hung out with Thelemites and stuff. Right. So we had this big melting pot pagan community. And, you know, sometimes you go to a ritual and a druid was doing it. So you kind of learn how they do things. And then, you know, 
some nights before a big party, we would have a reading from the book of the law or something, right? It was like this whole immersive experience that now, like where I live in the California Bay Area, you can just kind of hang out with people who do exactly what you do. Yeah. Right? You only hang out with witches or whatever. And that's great. But at the same time, you kind of miss this richness. So I got exposed to all these different kinds of practices, which I really love. Uh, so to me, like the pagan community has always been a pretty big deal because I grew up in a community that really was the pagan community. It wasn't just one aspect of it. It was a lot of uh, different pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's one thing I think we're, we kind of evolved away from as we moved online was, you know, connecting with, like in, in real life, connecting in real life with with whoever has, you know, a slightly similar interest to you just because you're you're so needing of those connections. Whereas now we're all online and if there's no one that does exactly what I do in my town, well, it's no big deal. I'll just stay solo because I have all these people on Twitter as a substitute, yeah. which I mean, it, it, it isn't a real substitute, but I think we, we've gone that direction where we're looking at those social media followers as a substitute in a, in a lot of ways. Also, there are some really lousy people in the community in the nineties and early odds before the like social media now is kind of like bleach, right? If somebody is a very bad actor, it's easy to like point out and say, don't do things with this person. Yeah. Don't be a part of this group. I mean, even in Michigan, you know, we heard horror stories of people who were using Wicca, especially to set up some sort of like group sex thing, right? I mean, calling it a cult maybe is a step too far, but they were certainly taking advantage of people, right? And so somebody has that bad experience, they don't want to go back to a group or they hear about that bad experience and they don't want to go back to a group. Yeah, uh, so I, I get why people sometimes just congregate to the online space. Even those people who do things with others, though, I think now it's just much easier to only be in the group that is full of witches, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't get this uh, richness that yeah. is part of our community for most of, you know, since in North America, since it really started in the 60s. Yeah. You know, all yeah. of the festivals and stuff that I've gone to in the US or Canada, it's always this diverse group of people who identify as pagans. Mm -hmm. We had a group here. Oh God, this is going back at least 20 years that, um, yeah, you're, you know, they were, they were a, a, you know, group of witches and a coven of witches. And in order to be initiated, uh, like the initiation rite was basically an orgy and, you know, all that bullshit, all of that bullshit, but people fall for it. Yeah. You know? And that was so common back then. So well, if you're, if you're not sex positive, then you're really not a witch, right? Yeah. And people would go mm -hmm. into doing that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, I I really think that sometimes Gen X doesn't get enough credit for like as because we really didn't put up with that sort of bullshit as much. I mean, I, I feel like there was like this much heightened sexual current when I came into the pagan spaces 
and it was really uncomfortable i think especially for young women mm-hmm. and kind of got we it kind of got tamped down i'm not saying it disappeared i'm not saying that we're perfect i'm not saying that we don't have work to do yeah but it, it, it was so much worse at one point than it is now oh god yeah yeah and i mean you know there's well first of all you can be sex positive without um uh being interested in having orgies so obviously i mean we can just get that out of the way because you know one doesn't automatically lead to another but i find you know that that overtly sexual or that overt sexuality that existed you know in the 90s um pagan community early aughts you know that that whole area I wonder, was it all about, you know, sex positivity or was it a rebellion of everyone's Christian upbringing? I always felt like there were a bunch of people who wanted to relive the late 1960s or had missed out on the late 1960s and were trying to recreate it. Yeah. That is what I always thought it was about. Um, you know, there are certainly ways to be sex positive without trying to coerce someone into having sex. Yeah. Right? But I mean, you know, you hear stories about free love and all that. And, you know, by the 90s with AIDS and, you know, kind of a greater awareness of what manipulating someone is like, I felt like that kind of began to kind of go by the wayside a little bit. Or at least more of us were saying, maybe this isn't what we should be doing you know maybe this yeah, is yeah 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 it's it's just I, I i find it such a weird dynamic and again this is all in retrospect i mean these are things i obviously wasn't thinking about when i was 16 17 but and yeah maybe you know there was people you know in that that time period that was just really um wanting to recreate the 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 60s sure but i don't know i i kind of feel like everyone was so and i mean there was a lot of like anti-christianity back then too in in the the pagan community for for you know for good or or ill whatever and i mean i'm there's some people that are justified in having their anti-christian viewpoints but I wonder, it just seemed to me, looking back on it, it was more a a rebellion of, as opposed to a liberation of um, Christianity and, you know, a, a heavily Christianized secular culture that we we exist in. I remember thinking how cool it was, like at something like Beltane, to have sex outside and think, wow, this is kind of like a religious rite. Right. I mean, that was kind of uh, revolutionary. Right. You know, yeah. in some ways. So, yeah. But I mean, we weren't doing it, you know, in the circle in front of everyone. No, no. With everyone. You know what I mean? It was still that was still a private experience, you know. And really living in Michigan, much like Canada, it's usually too cold, really, to do it at Beltane outside, though yeah. we would still try anyways. But, yeah. you know, you walk far away from your friends yeah we weren't on shows but yeah. it, it's still something you know really transgressive about it in a way because i mean you know like especially when you're in your or like your teens or your late teens your early 20s or 
you know, even up into your 30s, you know, you're kind of taught that, you know, this is something you should hide. This is something you shouldn't be proud to do. This is certainly not something that's religious or holy. And I think it is religious and holy. Yeah. yeah in so many ways. I mean, you know, sex outside is, can be really liberating, just like, you know, um, skinny dipping can feel yeah. really liberating, you know? Um, it, yeah, but, but again, you know, that's you know a, a private moment even though it, you know you could be part of a group ritual that specific act is a private moment it's not you know that's that's hardly a like a a shocking you know scandalous thing you know because again it's it's not an orgy and you're not doing it you know on an altar in a circle you know what it means so it's it's an okay thing, you know, it's, it's the people that, you know, you go to a pagan festival and, and they, you know, they want to grab you without consent in the middle of everyone else. And, you know, all of like the overt sexual sexuality happening, like with these certain people in front of other people, you know, where it becomes really problematic. Oh yeah. Like when you would go off into the woods or whatever, like the most that would happen is, when you walk back around the campfire to warm up, somebody would go, ooh, I wonder what you're Right? I mean, it's, yeah, it's not, just certainly like nothing. There's like no repercussion from it, really. Right? Yeah, it's, yeah. You're having fun and everybody's comfortable with that as long as everybody's consented to do whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a great thing about uh, here in Canada with Beltane being technically too cold for having sex outside but you do it anyways or at least attempt it um when you could come back to the campfire and everyone's like oh where'd you go yeah we, we went picking flowers you don't have any flowers yeah it's because it's the first of maine it's canada there are no flowers flowers don't exist oh. leave me alone my ass is cold <laughs> hold on okay there we go Perfect. So um, enough about Beltane sex. Um, I mean, we can talk about that um, forever, but you know, enough about that. Let's move on. There. Yeah. So I want to get to my my question that um, you know, like my biggest question uh, for you because I'm just always intensely curious about this is at what point, you know, you're, you're doing your practice and, you know, and it's all good and you're writing all the rituals. So, you know, you have that writing lead sort of background and experience. When do you just wake up and be like, oh, I need to write a book. Like that's, that's the obvious thing for me to do. I mean, I think I've always wanted to be a writer. I remember when I was 18, I had all these notes about some fantasy novel that I was going to write, you know, young orphan boy realizes a great destiny kind of thing. And I never quite wrote that. But uh, when I started doing witchcraft and leading pagan student group and all that, you know, I was kind of front and center. And so I started doing like Wicca 101 workshops and stuff at local psychic fairs and leading rituals and that kind of led to me and also published a local pagan zine uh, because we were trying to you know bring our community together okay. back what was it called 
The Wicked Read, R-E-A-D. Ah, clever. We did that for, I think, four or five years. I mean, oh, wow. Quite a run. And, you know, so I was writing there and, and doing these other things. And so I started kind of presenting workshops at festivals. And oh, wow. I was pretty good at it. Like, people would go to see what I had to say. Often, being, you know, not even 30 yet, I was wrong about many things <laughs> in those workshops, but believed I was right. But I loved doing the workshops. I loved, I loved talking in front of people. I mean, it made me want to throw up before I did it. But at the same time, once it got started, I found that I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I wasn't bad at it. And to do that more, you know, you really have to write. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm going to write. And so in 2005, I wrote The Horned God, which was my self-published uh, first attempt at a Horned God book. And got promptly rejected by Llewellyn when I sent it to them. Uh, so, and after that, I decided, after that kind of that rejection, I was like, I'm never going to write a book. I'm just, gonna, right. I'm just not going to do it. And started blogging in 2011, 2012, moved to California from Michigan and we moved out here for my wife's job. So I had a lot of free time. So I started blogging and attracted a readership. And after a couple of years, Llewellyn sent me something like, will you write a book for us? Oh, wow. Here's a topic. And there's a book about athames or athames, depending on where you live. Mm. Yeah. But I think, you know, to to want to write books, I think there has to be some ego involved, right? Yeah. To think I can write this thing. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was a vehicle because I loved the workshops. I loved, I loved talking in front of people, loved meeting people, going mm -hmm. out and doing things. So uh, the books are a vehicle for that. Eventually, though, after a couple of books, I found that I wanted to write about specific topics. Mostly I wanted to write about things that I wish I had had 20 years ago when I right. was starting out. You know, like I remember once walking with my wife and going, you know, one day we need to like make the cone of power in our coven, you know, and we need to do that ritual. And she's like, Jason, we do that every time we're together. And I was like, really? Because it was like one of those concepts that's not very well explained in books. It would just yeah. say like, make the cone of power. And then, you know, that would be it. So I was like, well, maybe I should write about these things so that they're clearer for some people. Uh, so that was the book Transformative Witchcraft. And then I'd wish I'd had a book about how to do ritual when I was starting out because ritual versus a group versus a coven versus a, a solitary is all very, very different. And that was the witch's wheel of the year. And then I felt kind of pushed to write a horn God book. So, mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, it's a combination of what's being asked ego. I want to create resources for people. I feel like this community has given me so much. I want to share some things with that. And then, you know, sometimes like a higher power saying, write this thing. Yeah. 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 It's weird. It's, writing is a, is very weird because, you know, like if you write a book about something, people assume you're an expert at it or they think that you're an idiot and they disagree <laughs> with everything that you say. There's usually not a lot of like in between space, right? It's yeah. either people like you or they hate you. Like the Horn God book, it's either like basically five star reviews or one star reviews, you know, because four people really disliked parts of the book. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, it's interesting um, reading um, Amazon book reviews in particular, especially the bad ones, like the one-star book reviews. 
it's it's funny in a way and you know i'm saying it's funny in a way because i'm not an author i'm sure you guys are oh my dogs they're barking um uh I'm sure you guys as authors, you know, don't find this nearly as amusing as I do, but a lot of these like one star reviews and they're bashing the book, but it's almost like a completely different book and they're referencing things that aren't in the book as reasons why they don't like the book. And it's like, I'm fascinated by you as a person. Like I, I, I'd love to, I'd love to know more about you um, because this there's there's a complete disconnect between the book you're reviewing and your actual review. You know, sometimes it feels like people didn't read the book. Yeah. You know, they write a review or you're surprised by like what small percentage of the book that they've really focused in on, right? And like uh, some of the Horned God reviews are about that because I, I, I dare to write about a couple of horned or antlered goddesses in the book. Mm. And to me, that's part of the story. So I put it in there. But right. that 1.6% of the book really upset a few people. <laughs> I, mean, I actually counted, I actually like counted like how many words were on, like dedicated to those parts of the book, right? And it was like a very low percentage. And, you know, but that's what people gravitated to. It's, it is really sort of strange. Sometimes though, you read a one-star review and you're proud of it. Like, right. you know. You know, like I think somebody, you know, saying I'm woke or something like that. And I'm like, oh, I believe that everyone should be treated with dignity and kindness. Uh, you know, and you obviously disagree. I'm proud of that one star review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, Greg and Dana Newkirk, when they launched Hellier, uh, someone gave them a one star review and the review was literally no goblins because they they went to hellier because a guy contacted them claiming that there's goblins on his property so they went to investigate and it was one star no goblins and they turned it into a t-shirt because it's great like it's it's such a fantastic review you know um how can you not love that i will say though sometimes the poor reviews hurt though i mean you mm. know like wound you as an author i know that i really sort of fixate on the bad reviews okay so you actually read the reviews i do and i should not everyone tells you don't read the reviews but right. i will read them anyways because i'm weak and i'm curious <laughs> especially during the pandemic right like it used to be i would go on the road and i would do workshops and i'd talk to people so you get feedback on what you do mm -hmm. and because of not being able to travel for so long and there really haven't been a whole lot of events there is no feedback so reading those reviews is some of the only feedback that I get. And it's, it's good to know that people have read your work, even if they hate it. I got my dollar from them, I guess, you know, but it does. And I don't think people realize how much it can, like a bad review can hurt. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, you spend, you spend a year of your life working on this thing. Uh, you put time and energy, emotional investment in it. Uh, and then for, you know, somebody to say, well, this is just terrible. You know, there was, you know, I have some Canadian friends who were on Facebook and they were like, you know, we're going to read Jason's book. And then uh, one person there who I'm friends with on Facebook, oh. right? Like, I'm going to see this. She, she was like, 
I just don't really like Jason's writing at all. I don't think he's a very good writer. You know, and I'm like, whoa, like, ow, right? Yeah. And then I want to write, well, you're a terrible writer too, you know? <laughs> you know, I don't care if you're, you, when you're, if you're a, writing nonfiction, I don't care if you're a good writer or not. Can you get the information across? Um, can you minimize the, you know, spelling mistakes and punctuation errors because apparently editing isn't a thing anymore. So, you know, keep an eye on that. Um, if, if you can do that, I'm going to like your book. Like if I don't care, I don't, I don't care how bad of a writer you are as long as you're getting the information across and you can get information across in a good way without being a good writer. I will say that I'm really particular about books. Like if it's not written well, I just can't read it. And if it's written well, I can read it even if I don't care about the subject. Yeah. 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 Books on like the history of fishing, you know, not because I, I don't even, I don't like to eat fish. Mm -hmm. I don't like to swim in lakes because I'm scared of fish. I don't like fish but <laughs> the guy who wrote the book was just such a good writer and i could tell that when i picked it up in a bookstore that i devoured it because it was so well written right right, so, right. Be, like somebody's ability to write is important but i would also say that like being able to convey information is the sign of a good writer yeah. i mean i've read books that have had good information in them that you could kind of weed out but they were written in such a way that it was hard to find right you yeah. had to really read this five pages nine times you know to find out what they were talking about so being able to relay information is a sign of a good writer when i see a bad review or a review where somebody says well i didn't you know like i didn't think that jason was inclusive in his in his writing or you know his rituals or whatever and at the beginning of the book i try to explain you know why things were written the way they were because the inclusivity is really important to me and, you know, you can go, well, they're a dumb reader, or you can think, well, maybe I didn't do that right. You know, maybe that's a failure on me, the author. Yeah. Because I did not express this as well as I should have. Right, uh, right, right. And it's hard, you know, and, and being critical is hard sometimes, but I think it makes you a better writer when you can be critical. Yeah. Not dismiss things. Yeah. But also at the same time, you can't be, you know, you can be a great writer, you're not going to be a perfect person. You, you can't get everything right. And I mean, you know, in, in an act of inclusivity, it's so easy to accidentally exclude, you know, because I, I have no concept of this, you know, um, this lifestyle. So I, I don't include, you know, I'm not aware of it. You know what I mean? And then you get criticized for being, um, ex, um, uh, excluding people and, and, you know, so it's tough. It's, it, it's tough. You know, you do your best and you hope for the best, you know, you see, you, but you see a good review where they're not bashing the book. They're just saying, Oh, I think this could have been included, blah, 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 blah. Great. Yeah. I'm going to take in that information and see where I can be better. But when, I'm perfect. when I wrote Transformative Witchcraft, a lot of those, there's a lot of rituals in that book. And a lot of them came directly from the things that I do with my coven and the things that I do with Ari. So they were all written like high priest and high priestess, you mm -hmm. know, and 
the, the beginning of the book says these are written this way just because I do ritual with Ari. And yeah. if you look closely, you'll see the high priestess has most of the lines because she's much better at this than I am. And, you know, but I'm not saying that you have to do it that way. You can have two priestesses or two priests or mm-hmm. um, you can, you know, not use those titles if you don't identify them with, you know, whatever works for you, yeah. right? You know, and then, but there were people, apparently that wasn't enough. So I, I felt like maybe I had failed, right? Because I certainly didn't want to alienate people or make them think that I was like really committed to this. You have to have a high priestess and a high priest kind of thing. I think that kind of thinking is really dated. It yeah. doesn't reflect anything. And I don't think, you know, it's necessary for ritual. I know in our coven, uh, sometimes, you know, it's, you know, could have two uh, young ladies leading the ritual or two guys leading the ritual or whatever it is, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you practice in a specific tradition? I'm an initiated gardenarian. Okay. Also, we have our own coven and it has its own things at this point, you know, like we use the same ritual stuff. Mm-hmm. It's called a tradition, but it's certainly a way of doing things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And gardenarian stuff has its own ways of doing things, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But when, when did you um, uh, go down the Gardnerian path? You know, I'd always been kind of interested in it. And I think as early as 2003, 2004, we were working with a Gardnerian out of court for a while. Okay. Friends that had been initiated into that group. Uh, so it w- was very welcoming and familiar to us in a lot of ways because of these relationships that we'd had. Then we kind of fell out of it for a while. And then in 2009, some of our friends who were in that coven had become high priest and high priestess of their own coven. And they were like, we want you two to be our first initiates. And after eight months of scheduling snafus, it finally happened. And that was in 2009. So, you know, I've been doing that for 12 years. Mm-hmm. In the middle of it, we like after, soon after starting though, we moved to Michigan. Maybe, maybe it was 2010. I don't know. Maybe I was initiated in 2010 because uh, we moved to Mich- uh, California from Michigan in 2011. So we didn't really have a whole lot of time with those people, but uh, we kind of continued to work with them from a distance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we have our own gardenerian coven in California. But yeah. Do you have a preference? You know, like gardenerian is, can be, very different well I, maybe i shouldn't say very but you know different than you know um witchcraft how how people would define witchcraft today um as opposed to how we defined it in the 90s where witchcraft and wicca was the same thing right and where you know like that you know eclectic do whatever you want wicca of the 90s um is very different from gardnerian wicca do you, I don't want to say have a preference, but do you tend more towards, you know, a more ceremonial sort of um, tradition or a very kind of looser inspired, you know, kind of practice? It's it's kind of in the middle now. I really like spelling things out i'm like i like having my circle casting written i like having my quarter calls written you know there's like no matter what which of the two covens that we're a part of what we're doing is you know the opening 
and the closing is pretty well done, right? It's all mm-hmm. kind of thought out. And then the middle is kind of the space that you can play with. For the Sabbaths, I'm much more likely to have something written or at least an activity planned or whatever else. But sometimes now, since our coven works so well, we can just meet and like open things up mm-hmm. and then we can spontaneously do some magic in the middle of it or whatever. Ari especially is particularly pretty good about that. Like if we somebody has a magical need, you know, she can put it together just like that and it's fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do I do think with Gardnerian, you know, there's a flow to the ritual, which is really different than eclectic ritual. I think I can say that without somebody saying I've broken my oaths. You know, yeah. but also I think most importantly, you're tapping into the egregore of it. You're tapping into the energy of it when you do ritual a certain way. So you're tapping into the things that Gerald Gardner did. You're tapping into what Doreen Valiente did. You're tapping into all of those energies. And that's one of the reasons I like guard is that egregore. Like all the people who practice Gardnerian craft are pushing this energy out there. Yeah. Right? And when you do ritual in that way, you tap into that energy, which is really great. I love our eclectic coven too, though, because as a ritual writer, sometimes I need to do weird shit mm-hmm. in the ritual, right? Like, I know I'll take the writings of Robert Cochran and turn those into a ritual, or I'll take Margaret Murray's Witch Cult in Western Europe and create a ritual out of just what's in those books. Right. Uh, so I love kind of experimental ritual. Yeah. And Eclectic Coven allows me to do that. They both satisfy different needs. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. You know, I, I've, I've had somebody who does, who likes to just start with no plan. I got to have something. Yeah. 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 I write um, all of my group's rituals and I, I enjoy writing rituals. And the, the you know, as, as much as I, um, I'm really into like my, my structured, you know, golden dawn is, is, you know, everything is, can be just so, and everything has its place and in its proper time and very structured. And I do like that. Um, I, I do like writing rituals and, and experimenting and be like, I don't know what's going to happen. Let's find out. Like, I mean, you know, you, you, you don't know unless you try. I mean, you know, we're not going to accidentally, open up the gates of hell and, and cause the universe to, you know, implode. So you might as well try, you know, and um, it's interesting because things can go wrong in just like a, in, this is just an awkward flow. It's just really not working. And sometimes the complete opposite, you come up with a ritual and it's just perfection. You know, it, it's poetry in motion. And, uh, you know, I, so I like having the freedom of being able to experiment and let's just try it. We'll either like it or we won't. It'll either work or it won't. And, you know, we won't be the worse off for it. So give it a try. I will say like the longer I do ritual, especially kind of like Wiccan witchcraft kind of ritual, there's a lot of you know things that you kind of build up like ritual memory. Mm-hmm. So when you do the middle part, you know sometimes you don't have to write anything out. You just think, "I'm well, well we're going to do this because yeah. we've done it before. I know how to do it." And then you just kind of go back to it. 
And yeah. so it's a little more spontaneous and you're not sitting there reading from a book or something, yeah, which yeah. is really nice. Uh, so, you know, that's become a bigger thing over the last four or five years, especially as, you know, had a working group now for like the same group for 10 years. Right. So we're super comfortable with each other in a lot of ways. Know what a lot of the people in the circle are going to do at any given moment. So it makes doing ritual that much easier. I yeah. don't have to think about it as much. Also, having written a lot of books, sometimes I'll just go into the book and go, well, we're going to do this ritual that I've already written, you know, and, <laughs> and pull it out, maybe make a couple of quick adjustments. You know, that that's nice. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how much of a unicorn your group is being together for 10 years, like a, a stable group that hasn't imploded splintered you know what I mean that that's just working and and you know I I bring that up just because we don't hear of the groups that work we hear about the groups that don't work because that's the drama and that's what gets the you know the quote-unquote press um all the gossip on social media you know what I mean um you don't often hear of groups, especially eclectic groups. So I think that, you know, the pagan world, the magical world is really different than a lot of other spaces. You know, like if you think of Christianity, you have a lot of sheep and a couple of shepherds kind of overseeing everything. And in our community, you have a lot more shepherds than sheep. You know, it's very, what we do is very interactive in a lot of ways. Uh, so people want to go and do their own groups or, you know, sort of wants to take charge and stuff. And it can be really difficult to keep a group together. And then there's because you're working with somebody so closely and because you're all involved in everything, you know, when there is a clash of personalities or something, you know, it can't just be settled by having somebody go sit on the back pew or on the other side of the room you yeah. know you're still going to be standing close to them so things break down a lot easier it i would say that our our current group we we did michigan for a long time like uh we were there for 15 years um ari and i before we moved out here and all of our groups there were short-lived mm -hmm. you know we, we practice with a lot of the same people over periods of time but usually it was like well we're going to do the one big beltane ritual we didn't have a coven like we would meet every month and do stuff, right? Uh, so coming out here and then having a group that has lasted for 10 years is really pretty mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and exactly. Completely, completely different. And, you know, I don't know what the dynamics are to get a group to work together for a long time. Obviously, I think you have to like each other. Mm -hmm. You also have to have somebody who is really invested in keeping everything going. You know, I'm, I'm the one who organizes stuff and things, you know, and you know, some, some people don't have that person, right? Maybe they all want to do stuff, but they don't have the person with the time or the resources or the energy to do the wrangling and the wrangling is important. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, we have one guy in our coven who said he would never join a coven. You know, he was very adamant about that. And we didn't call our cup. We didn't call our coven a coven for six months. Right. We didn't, we didn't want to offend him. And then at Yule, we we're like, we have to call this a coven now. <laughs> You know, like it's a coven, right? We all like each other. We're all doing these things in the same way. It's really great. And uh, it was funny. And then his wife told me he started like writing on his calendar, coven. <laughs> ah, oh, there you go. 
Yeah. I mean, but, but you get like, there, there's a big difference between you know, say, oh, my magic group, or you know, the group that I get together with, and coven or circle or lodge or temple. I mean, you know, th- those those other terms are so formal, like we're this formalized group, you know, and yeah, I can see where a lot of people are like, well, I, I would never join a coven. Meanwhile, they join a coven, you know? Well, I, I don't think that you know what it's like until you do it, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and then if you have a bad I mean, experience. We all hear the horror stories before our first coven, before yeah. first coven, we, we all hear the horror stories first. So it, it, it puts a lot of people off. And, you know, sometimes too, like you, maybe you read a book and it just doesn't sound very exciting or whatever. I remember, I think Edane McCoy wrote a book called Inside a Real Witch's Coven. And okay. it's not very good. I mean, it was like her coven was four people, right? And I don't know, it's like, didn't like reading it. I was like, well, this is sort of disappointing and depressing, right? Like I wouldn't want to join this. Like it didn't have that power and that magic that I thought a coven would have. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, we had that, right? And, you know, we had 12 or 13 people you know that that kind of energy i think makes it fun mm-hmm. and there's just more opportunity for the unexpected and i think that's important in ritual right like it's yeah. not always perfect maybe you don't know exactly who's going to show up what they're going to bring on that given night i love i love that i love not knowing everything yeah it's going to go it does feel good um you know, because I, I like things to be just so and, you know, a little bit more controlled and whatnot. But it's kind of, well, I guess not so secretly because I'm about to say this, but I but I secretly do like a bit of the unknown because there there's a certain liberation uh, to that because I always, you know, such a planner and this time, this date, X number of people, we're going to do this, this is going to happen you're going to bring this, I'm going to bring that. And to have that, that level of uncertainty um, that night, you know, by having a group kind of feels a little liberating. I, I feel like it gives it a little bit of an edge, not yeah. knowing exactly everything that's going to happen. Yeah. Right. And I like that little bit of an edge. Yeah. You know, just- I like when, when group members, um, oh, my friend X uh, really wants to, to come and see what this is about. That's fun. You know, that new, that new um, unknown person. What are they going to be like? What's going to happen? What's the energy in the circle going to feel like tonight? That's a lot of fun. We're pretty, like, we're weirdly adamant about, like, not letting people show up. Right. You have to, you have, you know, we have to talk to you first and, you know, have to screen people and we vote on like a lot of times we vote on like whether or not we let somebody in, but I love having new people. Yeah. A circle. Cause there's a new energy that you're working with, but also somebody who's new to the craft, their energy is excited. Yes. Right? They're, they're thrilled to be there. There's some, anti- there's this anticipation. Uh, we have a couple of new people in our coven right now like the first time one of them went to a ritual, I was like, I didn't think it was very good. I was like, well, this is by my standards. It's kind of low. She's like, oh my God, that was amazing. You yeah. know, and I was yeah. like, wow, that feels so good because, you know, their energy, right? They're so excited about doing it. And I think that's infectious. Yes. You have yeah. to continue to renew 
what you do so you don't get crusty, yeah. right? I think new people are really important to that. Yeah, and they're they're a great way to remind you because you know as much as as you know we want to change things up so it's not the same ritual all the time and whatnot, you still kind of have the same forms and 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 this the same dynamic so you have that new blood that's fresh and exciting and it's a really great way to remind you that you know magic is fun and it's exciting and it should always be fun and exciting and it's it's not a dredge and it's not an obligation you know um especially especially for those of us that are that are always the ones doing the organizing you know ranking the group and and figuring out dates and times and locations and and da 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 um it, it's easy to get so stuck in the weeds that you forget ultimately it should be fun it should be exciting yeah yeah i mean to me like what getting we, we our coven's made in our house um so there's like this excitement just from cleaning the house up before mm-hmm. people come over setting up the ritual space and stuff i i get tingles yeah you know, starting at about six o'clock when everybody's going to come over at eight o'clock it, it's um i don't know i love group practice i'm a terrible solitary just okay. it's hard you know, to get the energy up for solitary ritual. Okay. Especially after doing group ritual now for 10 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to pause for a second. So left to your own devices, um, would, you know, full moon and Sabbaths consist of, you know, just raising a glass of whiskey and saying, hey, uh, sometimes, yeah, though, yeah. I mean, during lockdown, my wife and I did some of them together, you know, like, and then maybe we take a minute to do something, but I'm not somebody who's very good at like, oh, I'm by myself, I'm gonna cast a circle and call the quarters, you okay. know, like, I just do something small, you know, and there's always a little bit of practice going on, yeah. you know, we leave libations to deities, I have altars like around me and, you know, we li- I light incense on them and things as offerings. So I mean, I'm doing things, but not like, I feel sometimes like that's almost more like my more pagan work. And then my witch work is with people. Right, 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 right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I garden and I think that brings me close to the earth, which. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Lux Files. I'm not just the host of this podcast. I'm also the owner of Lelo Gonzalez. I make beeswax and scented spell candles loose stick and liquid incense anointing rolls and bath salts so once you're done listening to this episode why don't you head on over to my website at www.leilokanzawan.com and check out my products for your convenience the link to the website is also in the show notes is a part of being a magical person Mm -hmm. but it's I don't think it's witchcraft practice. Right. So I'm just, I'm not a very good solitary. I need, I need people to do things. Yeah. But I mean, when you have a daily practice though, not like, you know, I'm not suggesting that, you know, once a month group work means you can go without daily practice or daily practice means you can go without, you know, more serious ritual. But if you have a daily practice, 
then the rituals can be, you know, like icing on the cake, you know, like, like the Sabbath rituals, for example, they can be more like a, like icing on a cake as opposed to your, um, your may, you know, majority of your practice. It is, I guess it is kind of like icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I need both, right? You got to do some things on your own in there, or sometimes when I think of by myself, I almost think of with Ari. I mean, we're so kind of intertwined. Yeah. The rituals for the two of us are kind of like solitary rituals in a way. Uh, yeah. So you got to have both sides yeah. of things. But, you know, I know some people who are really good at, you know, well, it's full moon. I'm going to go do magic by myself every full moon. I think I did magic for the last full moon. I think it was the first time I'd done magic by myself in like five years. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. You know, you, if I want to do magic, I do it with the group. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was just sort of an odd night. And I was like, I just feel like I want to do this. And I did it by myself instead. Now you guys, I assume weren't meeting as a group during the pandemic. No, we were not though. Eventually we did some online rituals. Mm -hmm. Uh, those were different. I don't like online ritual. I mean, it, it's kind of okay. I mean, a lot of it's in your head, right? It depends on how good you are at doing that in your head. One of our coven members had this great idea. She was like, go to the ritual room and set your camera up in there and put it on the Zoom call. So we would light everything up in our ritual space like we were doing a ritual in there. We'd even burn the incense. Mm -hmm. That was a nice way to focus on the ritual. And I remember, and like we hadn't done that for most of the pandemic. I think we did it for the first time at the autumn equinox. Okay. And, it, and I, ju I just started bawling. I mean, it was just so uh, powerful uh, to set that space up. Yeah. Uh, and it made, it made me cry. We did do Samhain. It is a coven during the lockdown. We had everybody wear masks. Ritual was outside. We said the ritual starts promptly at eight. Do not be here at 7.55, be here at eight. And we're going to start at eight. And that's exactly what we did. But it was very strange. You know, we yeah. did this ritual where you had lots of moving parts to make sure that people weren't together in the backyard and that there was space between everybody. And that was the one time we met in person. Yeah, okay. But my group we uh we went online of course with with the online rituals and no i mean you don't prefer the online rituals of course you want to be in person you know the the magic and the energy is 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 there but i will say there's a difference between doing online rituals and doing online or rituals online and doing magic online online rituals I don't care for, you know, I, I find, you know, they're lacking. They really are. But doing magic with a group online, I think is very different. And a couple of months ago, I wouldn't have had that opinion. I didn't really, um, I mean, and, you know, people have been doing rituals online for years i mean since the 90s really you know they've certainly evolved with the technology but even though it's been a thing for so long um 
I really discounted the validity of it up until a couple of months ago um, when I started doing magic with a uh, with a group and you know doing uh, like Enochian magic and and whatnot and the the results um, the the effectiveness the the power the energy um, is really undeniable. I'm like okay, there's something to to cyber magic and which led into a whole a whole bunch of questions like are computers or can computers be magical tools like genuine magical tools is the internet you know we, we talk about the web yeah we talk about the web of life is the internet you know a microcosm microcosmic web of the macrocosmic web like is is our magic is is this energy you know coursing through this 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 web the internet um it just it's making me rethink so much of my preconceived notions about cyber magic and doing ritual uh online and and whatnot so it's been an interesting experiment do you remember in the late 90s i think early 2000s there were books like cyber magic and that like um you know, your chat room rituals, that those kind of things. And people have been doing this for a long time. Yeah. And I don't think they would do it if it didn't work for them, right? Maybe yeah. it doesn't work for everybody, but for some people it obviously works. I know that while I'm not a big fan of online ritual, I still felt closer to everybody or I could feel kind of that energy around us. You know, and we did some magical workings and there was certainly something that you feel in the room believing in the egregore, right? Like you call down that energy. Yeah. You know, you work with Enochian magic, whatever, you're calling down the egregore of all the people who have worked with that sort of magic. Uh, so, I mean, I think we can do magic over the computer and away from people. Then it's hard, you know, like I, I know like when I'm doing like the cone of power, right? Or we're chanting or something and you can feel the air in the ritual space thick like soup. Right. I mean, it just overwhelms you. You know, I don't usually feel that if we're working magic uh, through means like this, but you still feel something, right? Yeah. And you're putting it out into the universe. And if you do something and you put it out in the universe, you're probably going to get some results somewhere down the line. Yeah, absolutely. Think the the thing with me, like with the Sabbaths, for example, being more of a um, it's more celebratory nature you want to celebrate with people and you want to have that gathering you know it's a special time where i find you know the the online rituals are lacking they're certainly better than nothing they're certainly better than me doing it on my own you know so in in a pandemic situation i'll definitely opt for doing an online ritual as opposed to with my friends with my group as opposed to just me or not doing anything um but i i, I find it, it's just it's not the magic component but just the 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 celebratory component very lacking but magic cyber magic i think there's something to it and i know in a lot of ways i'm late to the game because as you said like there were books being published in the 90s about cyber magic and even as far back as then 
um, as a supposedly open-minded teenager, I completely discounted them. I'm like, I'm not reading that. I'm not buying that. It's just a waste of money because computers and electronics aren't a part of magic. They're not magical tools. Da, 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 da. I had, you know, my preconceived notions about that. And those notions had lasted decades. I mean, I've been doing this since I was 14 and I'm 42. And I just learned within the past, I don't know, six months that there's something to cyber magic. One of the, there are a couple of things though that I thought were sort of good out of COVID and like, it's hard to say anything good comes out of it, but yeah. you know, by doing ritual online, we got to connect with people who had moved away from our coven. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Northern California is a very uh, trans transitory area now because it's so expensive and people go and they move somewhere across the country, but they got to be a part of things again. And it was so nice hearing their voices, right? And yeah, them, but you can see them. And I also loved that we had online festivals, right? Where you yeah. could sit at home and interact with a lot of different people. Uh, and usually like festivals are always in person, you know, maybe you have to camp or spend a ridiculous amount of money to rent a hotel room. And now we were doing these events where you could just sit at home and for a small fee, see 30 or 40 different major writers and ritualists and stuff. And not everything translates well. I mean, um, the online concerts can be a little strange in front of your computer. Yeah. The, some of the rituals, again, can be a little strange, but it's still like a great way to see a lot of people from all across, not just one country, but across several different countries and yeah. times and stuff. So I hope some of those things continue, you know, and I hope that when we need to, we make magic. Yeah. Friends online and have those connections that maybe we took for granted before or didn't think it was possible to do things with them. Yeah, absolutely. That is, and again, you don't want to say, oh, you know, the good things that came out of COVID, but um, it was kind of exciting because there's so many, you know, festivals and whatnot. And you, of course, you want to go to all of them, but who has the time and who has the money, you know? So you have to obviously pick and choose and you know you you end up throughout the year going to very few um you know as a as a guest so when everything went online it was like oh this is great i i get to go to all of them and it was wonderful you know and like you said you know some things work you know better than than others um but it, it was wonderful um uh, house kapuru did their their gather um online so at, calling it astral gather and which is great which prompted a a conversation like you know in the future when we can all get together again and gather can be a you know a physical um gathering again to still include that virtual element you know so you know, yeah, okay, so now that the speaker is is presenting in front of a, a large group in a, in a conference room, but it can still be, you know, recorded on camera and, and live streamed, you know, for people that can't make it. And I would never have thought of that pre-COVID to take a physical, you know, um, in-person festival and say, oh, we should also be 
streaming this to viewers for a fee as well. Yeah. And especially like organizations, right, that are scattered throughout the world. This is a way to bring everybody into the activities of that organization. Yeah. You know, instead of, well, you have to spend a thousand dollars to fly. I know, especially for you all to fly to the United States is really cost prohibitive, right? And yeah. 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 But now you can participate uh, from your couch or from your desk. And I think that's like a really important thing. I hope we don't forget those lessons. Uh, the whole festival circuit is predicated on people having money and time to travel to these places. Mm -hmm. and sometimes you don't have either. Yeah. And so people are really missing out on something. I mean, there was, well, I think the first really big one last October was Gather the Witches, which was the Witch With Me people. And that was like this huge, like three or four night thing uh, with live discussion panels and I think most of the workshops were pre-recorded, but they were big, like mm -hmm. you know, so many. And one of the nice things about the pre-recorded ones, you could watch it anytime that you wanted to. Like, you know, once you had, once you paid to watch the thing, you could do it anytime on your schedule. Yeah. You go to a big festival. Nope. Oh God, this workshop I want to see is at nine o'clock in the morning. Right? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to go to that shit at nine in the morning. And, and now, so it's kind of tailored to you, which is really nice. Yeah, or, or like the two workshops that you want to see are at the same time. And now you can see both of them. Yeah. I know that when I'm speaking at a live event. The other person that I really want to see is always speaking the same time as me. And I'm like, can I pretend that I'm sick? Right? Can, <laughs> how, how do I get out of this? Yeah, as long as we don't forget the the value of being together in a physical place you know what i mean um i i don't see i i hope you know a lot of organizers aren't like oh we're just gonna stick with virtual it's so much better you i don't know? i don't think you can replicate like a drum circle right or a lot of rituals online so i think that there's always going to be that yearning to go to the festival and be there with people for those people who like festivals but at the same time, you know, when it comes to something that's really workshop intensive, where the focus is the workshops, not what happens after eight or nine o'clock at night, the online alternative is really good because again, all, you can see things on your own schedule, don't have to travel, don't have to go anywhere. Uh, so I think, you know, both of them can exist and exist well together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, yeah. and there'll be festivals that don't adopt a hybrid model or whatever, you know, they're just strictly be here in person. And yeah, and I think that's fun. Mm -hmm. And then there'll be some that are like, we're strictly virtual. And I think there's a place for that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As long as we have, you know, the variety, you know, and we don't just go one way or the other, you the know. The more barrier, like the absolutely. more options, the better. Absolutely, absolutely, for sure, for sure. I think it's important. If that's one lesson, you know, we can take out of this, then I think it's, it's well worth it, you know, especially, again, you know, like you, you point out, not even necessarily distance wise, but just cost because flying from Toronto here in Canada, from Toronto to LA is so much more expensive than flying from Buffalo, New York, which is, you know, 
so close to Toronto, you know, and, and so many Canadians do that where they'll, you know, pop into the States, go to Buffalo and fly out from there because you can save massive amounts of money. But then someone like me, who's in Thunder Bay, I would have to fly to Toronto to then drive to Buffalo. It doesn't really, you know, work out. It doesn't really make that much sense. So I'm looking at big, big money just on flights, just to go to, you know, a festival. And um, that's not always going to work. When I lived in Michigan, I used to fly out to uh, to Pantheacon, which is now close to where I live. Mm -hmm. but, you know, it was the biggest North American indoor pagan festival for quite a while. But to fly from Detroit, Michigan to San Jose, California was several hundred dollars, like over $500. Plus, then you had to pay for a hotel room for yeah. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights. That's four nights. Those are at least $100, more with taxes and stuff. So you're looking at $1,000 before you've even eaten anything or had a sip of whiskey. Yeah. Just to go to an event sometimes if yeah. you have to travel. Um, and even when I lived in Michigan and I would drive to Convocation, which is a festival in Detroit, uh, you know, it was an hour and a half, two hours, but, it, you know, so I didn't have to pay for an airline ticket, but I still had to pay for a hotel room for mm -hmm. Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. That's 500 bucks, you know, yeah. plus food. So, and then, you know, you have to pay to get into the festival. It's like another 80 or a hundred dollars. It adds up really quick. Absolutely. And, you know, and it's always been sort of sad to me that, if you wanted to see a presenter, you had to go to those kind of events or maybe a bookstore event if somebody travels, but in that whole, wow, I'm gonna do this thing online, you get to see all of those people yeah. uh, for a fraction of the cost. Yeah, and yeah. Much more egalitarian in a way. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And you know, there's so much talk in, you know, the, the occult community about, you know, um, you know, equality and equity. Okay, well, let's put our money where our mouth is then, you know, and, and let's be more, more um, equal. And because uh, just like with anything else, talk is cheap. Yeah. You know, yeah. we can talk about it. Um, let's do something about it then, you know, let's, let's make it more equal. Let's make it more accessible. You know, and then I know some people have told me, you know, well, I don't have access to good internet, so I can't do that. And that's true. I mean, there's no mm. complete solution to any of this, yeah. right? Um, doing things costs money. It requires you to spend money sometimes. It requires organizations to spend money. But the more options that we can put together, the better for everybody, you know, yeah. and not every option is going to work for everybody. And yeah. No option is perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess for for people that, you know, have don't have great internet, if you know, an online um, festival is, you know, if, if you have access to the, the workshops or the lectures at your convenience, I guess that would help. You know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it really does. Yeah. I mean, not like, you know, I, not like I, I got you on here to uh, for the two of us to save the world today. But, you know, these are just thoughts. We're, we're going to completely change the pagan world. Everything's going to be different after this. 
and people are going to do what we suggest that they do. You know, yeah, yeah, you you joke, but I quite often, you know, find myself like if people just did what I tell them, this world would be perfect. And I'm like, you know what, Sean, that's some pretty big ego you're presenting right now. And I, you know, I have to catch myself and be like, you know what, maybe I don't know everything. I mean, I do know everything, like, let's be honest, but, you know, maybe I don't know everything. I I think it's important to throw the ideas out into the ether and see how it goes. I think it's important to to have conversations about what we can do better uh, because that's the only way we're going to do better is to have these conversations and present new ideas. And I mean, you know, I, I feel sorry for the person that thinks you know, everything they do is, is perfect. Like this is, this is the model. It works. It's perfect. There's no need to evolve. There's no need to change. Like, uh, really? I mean, cause, cause we're stagnant, you know, just like teachers, you know, like the best teachers are students. I'm always surprised. And it does, you know, this is what kind of way off topic. But uh, when I see somebody who says, well, I teach witchcraft, and then they're like, this is my book list, and every book is from like 1985 or Mm -hmm. earlier. I mean, to me, that's so stagnant, right? Like things have changed a lot. Uh, A lot of ideas that we had in the 70s and 80s, people don't use anymore, and maybe we're wrong in some instances. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's important to always be progressing and pushing forward. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't read books from the 70s. Some people are like, how dare you suggest that no one should read this? I'm not saying that. Yeah. I'm just saying that like, it shouldn't be the only choice. Like, There should be contemporary things in there. You should be reading Laura Tempest-Zakroff or Phoenix LaFay. should be reading like newer authors as well as classics. You know, that's it's a balance. Yeah, because I'm pregnant. Yeah, I, you know, the, the witchcraft community, the, you know, occult community, it's, it's grown and evolved over the past couple decades, because that's what we do, you know, and you you can't be stagnant. And um, the teachers that refuse to be students, you know, tend not to be the, the best teachers. I, you know, by 1975, there were probably a lot of people who didn't think Gerald Gardner's books were good anymore. Not that they were ever good. Wow. You know, and then by 1995, you know, maybe this book from the 70s isn't as good, right? Or, you know, going forward, like, uh, I think Scott Cunningham's Wicca, a guide for the solitary practitioner, has lots of issues. <laughs> has not held up very well since it was published in 1989. And then some people are like, oh, how dare you? How dare you? That was my introduction. Well, you know what? It was also one of my introductions. Yeah. But that does have you read it in 20 years? Yeah. Right? I, I mean, mean, it's also like, it's also 20, 23 years old. Thir- no, 33 years old, that book. Yeah, exactly. It was published in 1989. That's yeah. a pretty, you know, that's a pretty old book. I mean, we don't think of it as being an old book, but, you know, it's, it's rare in a lot of genres to have a book that's 30 years old still being kind of the doorway. Yeah, some. yeah. Uh, and we're very attached to our first books. Yeah. And so those are the ones we recommend over and over again, even if maybe we shouldn't. And yeah. some of those old books are, are updated periodically. Like, so um, The Spiral Dance by mm-hmm. Starhawk. She's, there's a couple of editions of it. She's always 
kind of keeping the book fresh and current. Margot Adler, before she passed away, she would update parts of Drawing Down the Moon to keep them fresh and current. Uh, but, you know, Scott Cunningham, I think, died in 19, 1992 or 1993. He's not there to refresh his book. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure he would have, too. I mean, because he would have progressed and changed, right? Yeah, Instead of, of course, absolutely. Snapshot of 1989. Yeah. And, yeah. Because, I mean, and that's what you, you have to understand with older books. Like, they're they're really a a moment in time. And even though the same bad information is not great now, it wasn't great then, technically. But back then, you didn't have better information. You didn't have better historical contacts and, and information. But it, it, it it's a moment in time. It's a moment in time. And you can still value the book. You can still recommend the book as long as you have more up-to-date recommendations as well, you know, to provide that context. Because that's just reality. We we grow, we evolve, we change. That's we're humans. That's what we do, and that's why I don't understand people that you know try to cancel Alistair Crowley or Dion Fortune and like uh, uh, Blavatsky. Yeah, they were problematic, and we should acknowledge that, right? Yeah, and that's important to acknowledge that. But I don't. But I don't think they can be completely dismissed. They've had a huge impact on things. They've had a huge, that, well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, you, you want to dismiss, you know, these, these people that have been dead for decades and decades and decades. So that's a lot of energy you're devoting on canceling people that are dust, number one. So I don't understand, you know, what's the point? Having a conversation of, why they're problematic is you know a lot more constructive but are you canceling them but still benefiting from their work because if you are that kind of makes you a hypocrite if you want to cancel them and their work then you can say bye-bye to modern witchcraft to wicca um to the golden dawn you, because all of these traditions are informed and influenced by these authors and their work. So what are you doing? Like, are you canceling the entire Western esoteric tradition or are you being a hypocrite? Uh, Dion Fortune is like one of my favorites. And if you've ever read uh, The Sea Priestess, which is her most mm. novel, there's like a lot of casual racism involved. She's really disparaging of anybody who's different in any way there's yeah. a lot of weird yeah. problems with it but also like the ritual scenes are like intense to read they're beautifully constructed yeah. you can feel that energy of those things and it had an impact on what Gardner and other people did just a few years later and I think they're worth reading because of that yes you know? and you know like you should well you should never read Dion Fortune because of these other elements no you should still read it and you should be cognizant of the other elements. And then you should go, wow, this ritual is really kind of cool, even if I don't agree with all of it and see it as what it was. I prefer yeah. what a lot of us do today. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Her sea priestess and moon magic 
out of like all of her novels, I think if if you wanted to get any sort of value out of them, like from a ritual perspective, it would be Sea Priestess mainly and Moon Magic as well. Unless you want to, you know, unless you enjoy like occult detective fiction like I do. So pick up her Secrets of Dr. Taverner. Absolutely. You know, but I credit Dion Fortune with um, because I write um, a lot of uh, occult detective fiction. And I credit um, Dion Fortune with a lot of inspiration just because, you know, like if you read, if you've ever read her um psychic self-defense book um you know her her fixation on you know the evil black robe magicians that you know they have nothing better to do in their lives but do magic specifically against us you know um honorable white robe magicians and the the occult police on the astral lot you know it, it's ridiculous but lots of inspiration um for someone writing you know occult fiction you know so i got value out of psychic self-defense purely for that just gonzo worldview of of the occult community and what magic people are doing to each other I, lo- I love the history of magic and the history of ritual and at festivals I'll do sort of experimental rituals and one of them I do is a Dion Fortune ritual based on mostly moon magic okay that calls Isis and Pan so I put a little goat foot god in there too and I think it's fun to do that time machine right to see mm-hmm. what a magical rite in 1938 1939 would have looked like because it's different from what we do yeah uh, but still really cool that somebody was basically drawing down ISIS at that period of time. Uh, that That's cool to me. And I want to share that kind of experience with people. And, you know, I've done these rituals and most of the time the turnout is really good and people are interested. And some people too, like, especially when they're older, there were, st- there were so few magic books, right? Mm-hmm. There were so few resources that they did rituals in that same kind of way. And we were doing a Dion Fortune ritual once our coven and all the, I noticed this lady just mouthing every word that we were saying, right? From the invocations of Isis from, um, from um, Sea Priestess. Mm-hmm. And it was, and like, she felt like so validated that somebody else was doing ritual this way to see other people bring that to life. I could tell meant, and she came up and told us later, you know, how much it meant to her. That was like really an awesome moment. Yeah, people awesome. in our coven who wouldn't do that ritual uh, with us, with the rest of us, because they did, you know, were angry about some of the things that Dean Fortune had written. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's legitimate too to feel that way, you know. Yeah. But uh, also, I thought it was a worthwhile exercise to do that ritual, you know, and kind of do the time machine ritual. Yeah, absolutely, because it's not a, it's it's not a literary. Um, invention she came up with she was a practicing ritual magician you know she didn't just write those invocations for the book no that's what she was doing at the time which is what makes it so much more powerful 
Exactly. Exactly. And I kept the sexist language. I mean, even she was writing, you know, men, right? It's, you know, men. It's not men and women or everyone or all. It's just men. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's part of the history of these things, too. Uh, It's shocks. It still shocks me to this day um, reading, no matter how how many times I reread Dion Fortune, when with a lot of these, you know, older like period writers, the the casual racism, it's not shocking because we have overt racist, so much overt racism that we're we exist in today that it, racism isn't shocking. But what I I still find shocking every time I I read Dion Fortune is the, and I don't know if it's sexism or misogyny, you know, coming from a woman, but when she's writing, you know, using male pronouns exclusively. And to me, that's really shocking. You know, it, it even shows up later. I mean, it shows up in the the Doreen uh, Valiente version of Charge of the Goddess, right? It, like the original version from the 50s, you know, still just has men in it. It doesn't yeah. have like men and women or humankind or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's how people talked. That's, you know, what they did. And, uh, you know, I, I find it interesting. You know, it's good to know where we came from and it's good to know how we're improving. And when you yeah. read that old stuff, you it kind of hits you because we have improved. Yeah. And I like to see those improvements. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as a community, we should be proud. And that's why I don't get the whole, let's cancel these people, pretend they never existed and their books never existed. Because you read these books and you get to look at the community today and see how much it's grown and evolved and improved. and you get to be proud of being part of that tradition. If you don't know your history, you are doomed to repeat it yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And so I think it's important to, to know about Crowley and Fortune and um, Mathers and all of these different people uh, from the last couple hundred years. Yeah. You know, yeah. Despite their flaws. And, you know, and some of them still did good things despite their flaws. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I mean, like I said, the alternative is to cancel them and everything. Well, like, unless you want to be a hypocrite, but cancel them and everything that they did, which completely collapses our occult tradition completely, you know. And, and sometimes it's taken to extremes. Like there's a lot of stuff about Gerald Gardner that goes around now. Oh, like uh, somebody was saying Gerald Gardner is a pedophile. And I was like, yeah. there's nothing, there's no nothing in any history of Gerald Gardner that suggests something that horrendous and terrible. Yeah. Uh, Gerald Gardner was a sexual predator. There's not, you know, Gerald liked to do ritual naked. I'm sure he liked to look at naked women. Yeah. You know, like a creepy leer has no place in a ritual circle. Uh, but it doesn't mean he was a sexual predator. Like, you yeah. know, the, you know, there's, there are degrees of things, um, but you, if you're going to say something about somebody, it should be true. Yeah, yeah. I saw someone um, make a post about on Twitter about um, Gerald Gardner being a pedophile and people like, why would you even say that? Oh, because he liked to do ritual naked. 
Okay, but that has nothing to do with pedophilia. Oh, and he liked uh, whipping. Uh, again, like that, that that has nothing to do with like. Do you not know what pedophilia is, or are you so stuck in your puritanical upbringing that you haven't been able to separate that from your your witchcraft, your paganism, that you're bringing that puritanical Christianity into your paganism and anyone that's wants to be naked in front of people is such a sexual deviant that obviously they would also be a pedophile because they're going to obviously do all horrible things that you can think of. It's, 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 it's mind boggling to me. It's such a big word. It's such a big accusation. Mm-hmm. And if I say something like that, there needs to be something behind it. Yeah. And it needs to be more than just, I don't like Wicca. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that's, yeah. You get that a lot. It's just like, I don't like Wicca. Well, there's a lot of things not to like about Wicca, especially as it was practiced 40 or 50 years ago. You know, there are issues and and those are legitimate and worth pointing out. But when you kind of go too far to the other side, when you're saying things that aren't true, then it's harder to take anything else that you say seriously. Exactly. Clouds over real issues and real problems. Yeah. But even, you know, calling uh, Joe Gardner sexist or misogynist or whatever, and we have in their own words, the accounts of the women that Gerald Gardner worked with in ritual and circle with magic. uh, Yeah, completely countering that narrative of him being, you know, a, a perverted sexist. And these these people online completely discounting these women's words and like, no, 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 that's not true. What's more sexist, standing naked in a circle or completely dismissing the words of women? Lois Bourne wrote books. Patricia Crowler is still alive if you if somebody wants to have the conversation with her. Yeah. And, then, and even then, if they don't want to have the conversation, they can read what she's written. Uh, Doreen Valiente, uh, Ray Bone. These were powerful women mm-hmm. who, have, who have a written legacy who worked with Gardner. And yes, I mean, sometimes they disagreed with him about things and rightfully so. Yeah. Uh, especially Doreen went through some shit with Gerald. But I mean, she still has a lot of great things to say about Gardner in yeah. her 1989 book, Rebirth of Witchcraft. I mean, it, it's there. We yeah. have the first person account. Even even like the account of somebody who didn't like Gerald, you know, the worst thing that she could find to say was that he was a silly old man. Mm-hmm. And maybe he had body odor. I mean, that was it. I mean, yeah. she couldn't like say that, you know, he was this completely awful person. She was just somebody that she ended up not liking. And yeah. that's reasonable. Sometimes we don't like people, even yeah. if they're good people. Like I have friends that don't like some of my other friends and that's, that's okay. Yeah. People who don't like me. That's fine. You know? Yeah, exactly. I, you know, it, but it's, it, it's no, um, you don't just start making up stories or accusations, you know, about people just because you don't like them. And you certainly don't in your, your, you know, uh, quest of, of, of um, feminism, you certainly don't try to cancel out the voices of other women because they have a different narrative about this person than you. 
they were the ones who knew Gardner best. And they wrote long after he was dead. If they wanted yeah. to say things about him, they didn't have to worry. They didn't have to worry about repercussions. They could yeah. have heard those things yeah. about Harold. Um, Doreen was an extremely strong-willed woman. Patricia is a strong-willed woman. Lois Bourne was a strong-willed woman. I don't think that they would have written nice things about Gerald unless they meant them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And their criticisms about Gerald, and they did have criticisms about Gerald, are still valid too, right? Um, yeah. But they're not like these horrendous accusations that you sometimes see. Yeah, exactly. Now, especially on TikTok. Oh, I could just imagine. I mean, I'm not on TikTok. So, but you hear on Twitter what's going on on TikTok. So I can just imagine, you know, what's what's being said there about um, about Gardner. It's like, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, I, I'm 42 years old. I, I'm not really particularly interested in, you know, um, like what's being said in, in TikTok videos. Um, and, you know, I always say I'm, I'm too busy doing the work to. I, you know, I, th I think it has repercussions, though. I think we have to pay attention to some degree um, because this is the next generation, right? Yeah. And if, if they're getting every, you know, I don't want to say anybody's getting anything wrong. I mean, there are valid points everywhere, uh, but we should still know how to interact with them and sort of what they're saying. I mean, I find social media exhausting. Yeah. Like, yeah. I scroll through, I, you know, I, I scroll through my Instagram and it's video after video of which influencers. And I'm like, how do you have time for that? And, and why <laughs> do you, do you have time for that? But I mean, that's how people are getting a lot of information now. And I think it's yeah. important to know what's going on in those spaces, even if it's alien to us or we don't. Yeah. Understand. You know, like a, like a, a, a cursory idea of, of what's going on. Like, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, really focus uh, to the extent where I'm going to join TikTok so I can see these people and watch all of these videos. Like I'm not, I, I, I'm, I don't think I need to be at that level to understand what's going on so I can, you know, counter the, the messaging when, when needed, you know, I, I have enough of an overview of what's, you know, what being said on, you know, any given topic. Um, but also, I mean, I grew up on, you know, Alistair Crowley, the wickedest man in the world. Um, I, you know, getting into magic as a teenager, um, I was able to grow into a, a person into an adult that's you know um more discerning and and like okay well let me find out for myself and you know i think most people are like that um i'm not oh too too worried that um all of these young potential witches and and wiccans and magicians are gonna see these tiktok videos and take them with them throughout life, like their valuable life lessons and, 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 you know, ultimate truths and whatnot. For sure. I mean, I hope I, hope, you know, in any I mean, case, I remember growing up in the nineties as a, you know, as a witchling, right. And how an older generation was horrified by us because we had yeah. been influenced by the craft and, Oh my God, we were building web pages or we were chatting in a chat room, you know, yeah. and, you know, it was like everything's going to fall apart and that did never happened, right? Yeah. You know, and yet some people who 
you know, we're probably making, doing rituals to man on or whatever was in the craft, right? <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, they were probably a small percentage and, you know, and they probably fell away from what we do. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, these other social medias would be the same way. Well, I, I would imagine the majority of them would because I, you know, there's the social media is calling it the um, aesthetic witchcraft or, or the witchcraft aesthetic as opposed to, you know, actual like practitioners or the occult aesthetic or, you know, whatever. And I, you know, how do they find the time? Because that's that's the extent of their occult practice. I mean, you know, on a really busy day, my daily practice may only be an hour, but it's normally like three hours. So no, I, I don't have, you know, these, these heavily curated videos all over my social media because I don't have time. I, I'm, I'm, because I'm, I'm doing the work. I'm not talking about it. Well, I mean, I remember just five years ago was about, you know, putting up a pretty picture, right? Mm -hmm. on Instagram. Yeah. And that was one thing. And now, you know, it's about videos all the time and stuff. And, oh, you know, it's like, how I have trouble finishing all these books. I can't, I can't do the other stuff. Yeah. yeah. Also, you know, things change and progress and how we get information changes and progresses. I don't want to dismiss what some people are doing. I try to be really cognizant of that. Even if I don't get it, I don't want to be dismissive of it. Mm. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine and talking about like when we were 15, you know, 16 in the 90s, you know, you read a couple of books on magic, you do your first ritual and you realize this works and you feel like you're the most powerful magician in the world. And I said to him, I wonder if these, you know, content creators that are, you know, purely here in, in the occult sphere to create content and not like to do the work. Um, I wonder if they're the 21st century version of the 15 year old that does his first ritual or her first ritual and now they know everything and and they're powerful witches or magicians you know I, I think that a lot of people who do these things get something out of it and not just followers i mean i i think that there's a level of sincerity there um you know again may not understand how they get there but i think it's i think that there is still sincerity there that they are real practitioners. It's just everything looks a little different. Yeah. As you get older. And no, like, yeah, I mean, like, there are content creators that are um, practitioners, but like the content creators that are are in the occult sphere purely for the the aesthetic, purely for creating the the content as opposed to doing any yeah. magic work. Um, I like as I like are they because you know, back in the 90s, we weren't as visible because we didn't have social media. So they seem more prominent now, but I, I don't think they're as prominent as it, as it seems, you know, because the 
people that are, are doing the work, they're not spending a lot of time on social media, you know? So, but so the ones that are just creating the content just for creating content and not really doing magic, I think there, it's just, it's the 21st century version of the 15 or 16 year old that stopped at that one book and that one ritual. And now they, they know everything. Like they're, they're, I'm, I'm a powerful magician because they, they did that ritual once and they felt something and they didn't, they didn't take that and, and run with it and, and grow and um, create a magical practice. You know what I mean? I know at 23, I felt like I knew everything, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As I get older, I realize how wrong I truly was. Yeah, right. I don't know. And I, I mean, I do think that with with youth, sometimes there's this an, there's this exuberance, and we think that we know maybe more than we do. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. not like a condemnation of anybody. It's just you know how you are when you're young, right? yeah. And yeah. then you kind of grow and you become more of an you know you become a different person as you get older, and maybe you realize that you don't know as much as you think yeah. you do. Which is great. You know, you, you, you're, you're growing, you're evolving, you know, um, and, and those people stay in the community, they grow and, and they, they find value in it. And, and the ones that, you know, I did my, my one ritual, I'm now the most powerful magician in the world. I'm, I'm done. My, my learning is done. Don't need to learn anymore. Well, they're, they're going to grow out of it. You know, they're, you know, and, and I think a lot of like the, the, a lot of um, the creators, the content creators right now that are just doing it, just like I said, just to create the content and not to actually do the work, they're probably going to grow out of it, you know? Yeah. And the same way. Also, I think that, you know, things are really different now than they were. I mean, they're always different from generation to generation, Yeah. but you know, there was a point to be a witch, you had to like know another witch, right? You had to, you had to be initiated. There were no rituals floating out there. And now all this information is out there and uh, people can, can jump into it much easier. But I think as they get older, you know, they're gonna, they find that maybe they wanna take this to a different level. So like to be a, a gardenarian or maybe in the golden dawn, a lot of times isn't something you do in your twenties anymore. It's something you do in your thirties, your forties or your fifties. Yeah. And yeah. that's a different sort of model, but I think that we'll get more and more used to it, right? And yeah. I know that for us, like when people want to be a gardenarian, they're not 22, mm-hmm. they're 32 or 42, which yeah. is probably different than how it was in gardener's time when you were young, because that was the only way to jump in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, as long as you're doing the work, um, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how messy or eclectic or traditional it is do the work as long as it works for you that's what's important right do the work don't worry about anyone else don't worry about what anyone else is saying and whether you want to share a bit of that work online or not it's entirely up to you um i mean you'll know like the people that want to do the work even young people that don't know don't know what paths are taking like you know when they're first discovering and first experimenting and trying things out um but but they're genuine seekers and you know who they are even the young ones you know who the genuine seekers are um they're not the ones that are going to be spending all day doing content creation because 
they're, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll post online because that's what the generation does now. And that's fine, but they're gonna, you know, they'll discover that, you know, doing the work takes work and takes time and, you know, it, they're, they're going to figure it out. We figured yeah. it out. They'll there's, figure it out. We all figure it out. Yeah, you there's know. some really great kids who, like kids, I mean, they're in their 20s or whatever. I know, right? <laughs> but, I mean, who post every day and have videos and stuff who share really good information. And I would rather people see them than some other things and maybe even watch some of those videos versus some of the terrible things I had to read in the 90s. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just do the work, do the yeah. work, have fun, um, experiment, you'll figure it out, but just do the work. That's all that matters. Absolutely. So here's a pause. I have to run to the bathroom. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and we're back. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Some, sometimes, you know, there's too much coffee. Mm. For anyone worried about my coffee intake while we've been talking, this is like mostly decaffeinated, so I'm not completely wired. Yeah, there you, you never have too much. Oh, I shouldn't say that. I was gonna say you can never have too much coffee, but that's obviously that's obviously not true. I'm a big coffee drinker. I love my coffee. Managed a coffee shop for ten years, so I'm very well versed in coffee. Mm. But you know, I like drinking hot stuff. Yeah, especially like when I'm talking. So I like brew like this very weak coffee <laughs> and then settle down. I'll I'll never drink uh, decaf, not even just for the taste of coffee, because I love the taste of coffee so much. Decaf like decaf is just coffee flavored water. I, I protest. I, I don't agree with that. Yeah, it's useless brown that, water. Yeah, it, basically. It like put it in a bottle next to hint water because that's all that it's coffee flavored water it's not coffee it is my wife mocks me for it sometimes but uh we are it is what it is plus it doesn't taste good i've never had a decaf that tasted that didn't taste like like burnt coffee well when you get to california i'll introduce you to things that aren't that bad <laughs> I promise I'll put that on my list. Get to California to try decaf coffee. Yep, as much whiskey as you want and decent, like not fully caffeinated coffee. Perfect. I'll just add the whiskey to the coffee. You can do that too. Yeah. yeah. They invented that. The Irish whiskey was invented. Like, the, or like, yeah, um, Irish coffee. The Irish coffee was not invented in Ireland. It was invented here in mm -hmm. San Francisco. Of course. Yeah. We're changing the world out here on the west coast. <laughs> changing the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Changed, changed witchcraft. This is a very influential spot for witchcraft. Home of the Anderson fairy tradition, uh, covenant of the goddess, the mm -hmm. new reformed orthodox order of the golden dawn. It's uh, pretty cool that you know I live in this area with these pockets of history. And you talk about egregores and stuff. I feel like practicing on the west coast. You kind of tap into that history. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the Church of All Worlds, I mean, because um, they, I mean, it, it it started in the Midwest, but they moved out to California. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Oberon lived north Oberon and Morning Glory lived north of here for quite a while. Yeah. Quite north of here by several hours, but north of here. Yeah. I read um The Wizard and the Witch, which mm -hmm. is which is uh, a book about the the two of them. And I didn't quite grasp until reading this book um how how uh the the like neo-pagan movement grew out of California um side by side with you know Wicca coming to birth in in the UK and how these two sort of separate pagan traditions or communities grew at the same time completely separate on separate parts of the the planet and and i don't know why until reading that book it i didn't really grasp how it wasn't wicca came about came to north america and evolved from there which is you hear a lot of the narrative of it kind of being that way um, as opposed to this pagan tradition growing up independently in North America, independent of the, the Gerald Gardner's Wicca uh, movement in the UK. So even just that, like that little tidbit of information, like really being able to wrap my head around what that looked like, um, that was a book well worth reading. The Wizard and the Witch is a, is a terrific book, and mm -hmm. the Church of All Worlds never really had a huge membership in its heyday. Uh, yeah. It still exists today, but because they printed a magazine, they ended up having a lot of influence on the greater movement. And it's funny today when you kind of talk about the history of things, and like you know, there are kind of little crucibles, like places where you know are very important to the story, you know. Uh, one of them is London, where Gardner like had the Bricket Wood Coven, and you know what we today call Wicca really got its start. But it's funny people like always go, "Well, Wicca is neo paganism," and they didn't use the word pagan, right? The those witches they didn't call themselves Wiccans either, you yeah. know. And then in the late '60s, you have this other crucible on the West Coast, and you have people embracing Earth religion, and it's inspired by paganisms of the past. And they're not Gardnerians because they don't have access to those rituals, mm -hmm. right? They don't, they don't know anybody who lives out there because all of the Gardnerians are in New York City. Like yeah. that's where they settle. Uh, so they, they create these weird and different and new forms of worship based on ancient paganisms and stuff. And then when they discover Wicca, they think that they find it very compatible with all that. So sort of incorporate it all in together. And the West Coast was this amazing melting pot of all of these different pagan traditions. Um, and then they kind of spread out everywhere else, you know, but it was very compatible, I think, with the hippie movement of the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. Uh, which is why the Wicca kind of got adopted by a lot of those groups. And there was paganisms that formed off of some of those ideas and those places. Um, and Gardner was a conservative, right? Like a lot of the early witches in the 50s in the UK were not liberal. They were not hippies. They were right. conservatives. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's really funny, like how those two different forces kind of came together. Yeah. And then, you know, to end up 
all mixed together to the point where, you know, that that whole um, publishing boom of the 80s and 90s, you know, everything was was Wicca. And Wicca was whatever you wanted it to be. And it just it's 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 fascinating how it evolved. You know, it, it had kind of been bubbling in the 70s, too. And I think people overlook this word Wicca really wasn't being used a whole lot, though, it'd show up. But even Paul Hewson's Mastering Witchcraft, which was published in 1970, like a lot of people today, it's like, well, that's a traditional witchcraft book. And there's a lot of it that's very different from Wicca. However, yeah. the last chapter, like the coven and how to form one is Wicca 101. Yeah. It's hardcore Wicca 101. And like that basically gave you all the information that you really needed to practice Wicca without being initiated. And then that picked up speed later because a couple of years later you have Lady Shiva's Book of Shadows come out. I think just in no, just the year later, 1971. And then you have The Tree by Raymond Buckland, which was his uh, different version of Wicca, which mm. was for everyone with complete rituals and stuff. You know, so by 1975, it was pretty easy to do and kind of work it around yourself without being initiated into a group. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it was really fast. And, you know, that's 15 years after Gardner goes public in 1951, right? I mean, it's... It's a, it's, it's a fast, um, huge explosion. You know, like, it, it's really um, shaped um, not just occultism in, in general, but, you know, society as a whole. There's something about uh, magical practices that just kind of have tapped into the modern zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. you know? And they've always been there. Um, they're just easier to see now. Yeah. But I also think that people were looking for kind of a spiritual or religious magical practice. And, you know, they'd had echoes beginning that with the Golden Dawn, but Wicca really made that simple to do. Yeah. Right. And uh, the other pagan traditions that followed in its wake or you know, we're inspired by it. They do the same thing. And yeah, that's really nice that we get to live in an era of magical spiritual traditions. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, we've always believed in magic. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of people like to say, even in, in the, the occult community, that it's just, you know, West, modern Western society that, there's no belief in magic. Well, that's not even true. People in modern Western society have always been practicing magic, but I get what they're saying. Like the overall, you know, you know, society, if you take society as a whole and really generalize Western society, technically we don't believe in magic, but we've always, humans have always practiced magic. This world has never been without magic. What's great, you know, we, we get we can get so much inspiration from, you know, the Golden Dawn and, um, you know, the grimoires, whatever, you know, past era you're inspired by. We have the added benefit of accessing those works, but existing in a world where we can walk down the street by and large and be like, we're witches, or we're pagans, we're druids, we're magicians, and you're safe. Like, I mean, you're not gonna get beheaded or jailed 
or burned um, or, you know, heckles so much, you know, like we're, we're, we're existing in a, in a pretty exciting time. We are. And, you know, one of the things too, is like people talk about the decline of magic and the occult in Western civilization the last couple hundred years. I would argue that it's just the opposite. It's just kind of changes and mutates forms. Yeah. Spiritualism, 20% of Americans were spiritualists at yeah. one point in the 19th century. So 20% of people are actively speaking to the dead or believing that they're speaking to the dead. And astrology is more popular than ever right now. And more, I think more people probably know their astrological sign because we grew up with it in newspapers and people talking yeah. about it, right? Uh, yeah, just magic's always there. It just kind of changes. Yeah. I mean, you remember like history is written by, you know, that, that, that um, saying history is written by the winners. Um, you know, the history books aren't, the narrative isn't always accurate. And it's easy to get the impression that, you know, the, the age of enlightenment was science and no spirituality, no magic. Well, we know that's bullshit. Um, you know, even the narrative that, you know, since, I don't know, 500, 600, you know, CE, magic hasn't been a thing. It's been church, the church, the church, you know, yeah, but there's still magic. Except all those popes practicing magic. Right. I mean, it, it I mean, just... we, we yeah, we have to thank all the priests and the popes because they were the literate ones for um, keeping the remark tradition um, alive with all their manuscripts. So we have them to this day. You know, we've always been practicing magic. It's just right now we're a lot more open about it than they were even 100 years ago. It was just kind of something that you knew people did, but you kind of winked at them while they were doing it and then yeah. moved on. And now, yeah. I mean, it's really out in the open. Yeah. And I think in uncertain times, magic gives you control over things. Uh, so it becomes more popular, mm -hmm. you know, like especially, you know, the last 10 years, I mean, the COVID, uh, ugh, Donald Trump. I mean, there's a lot of things, right? And people are looking for control and magic is a way to, to get that control. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I don't know, um, COVID, not not because of COVID itself, but just the, the um, what COVID led us to, like with the lockdowns. And I mean, I know, you know, the worst, or no, I shouldn't say the worst, the most lockdown places in the US just didn't compare to what most of us in Canada has experienced when it comes to lockdowns. Like we locked down uh, most places here in Canada. There was like our, our maritime provinces, you couldn't even go into them. Like as a Canadian, you couldn't even go there. My province um, for the all the third wave was just, everything was shut down except for you know, grocery stores and pharmacies. We had a stay-at-home order. Yeah. So yeah. You know, for 18 months of, of this pandemic so far, a uh, year and a half, um, 
I mean, I work from home. So, I mean, I already spend a lot of time of, at home, but now you have that knowing that you, you don't have, you, you can't just get up and go and, and head to a store because the store is closed. You can't just, you know, Oh, it's Saturday night. I'm just going to go to the bar and hang out with friends. Well, no, cause the bar is closed. Like now I can spend days without leaving the house because I work from home and I'm really busy but now that I absolutely can't go anywhere, I want to be everywhere. And magic was uh, a big lifesaver, a big, big lifesaver. When you have, like, when you have the option to go out, it doesn't feel like you're trapped. Yeah. But as soon as the option is taken away, then you feel like you're trapped. Even yeah. if you, you know, normally wouldn't leave for a week or whatever it is. Yeah. And right? when everything opened... I didn't go out anywhere. I haven't been to a restaurant. I haven't been to a bar um, since everything opened, but even like just stores. Well, first of all, I knew like the first weekend that all the stores were going to be open. There were going to be lineups down the frigging block because everyone wants to be in the stores. And that's exactly what happened. Um, but no, I haven't been, I still haven't been to a bar or a restaurant. Uh, now that I can go, I have no desire to go, you know? Yeah. I went to a concert Sunday. I'm going to one tomorrow. Nice. At the bar last night. But I have to admit, though, like as the Delta thing picks up, I'm much more wary of yeah. it. You know, like we had here, we had like a month where it was night, like we didn't worry so much. And that, you know, didn't last. Um, yeah. Yeah. Magic is, good, magic is a good escape. It is. It is. Yeah. And, we did spells to keep everybody that we knew safe and we didn't have any friends come down with COVID and some people would be like, well, that's just, you just got lucky. Mm -hmm. and that's true. But uh, the magic made us feel like we were doing something. And that's yeah. Important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, friend, yeah. Good. No, it's just because it, it certainly, I think helps with my keeping my sanity. I had a, I have a friend who's an atheist pagan who really doesn't believe in magic at all. He's like, well, what good does this do? right and i'm like let's say magic didn't work at all right and uh doesn't work but you do the the ritual at the very least the fact that you're doing that ritual is going to reinforce certain tendencies in your life right if you are doing a ritual to protect from covid that doesn't mean that you're probably just going to like go out without a mask and like kiss everybody on the mouth and lick lamp posts and stuff <laughs> it's probably going to reinforce the behaviors that lead to not getting COVID, yeah. right? Or, or doing the things that are responsible, like getting a vaccine and stuff. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think magic has this huge power in our lives. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Even even if people don't believe in it, I think doing it can have power and influence. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. I agree one hundred percent. And you know, most people, I can't think of anyone. Um, in my sphere or beyond even you know even the people that you quote unquote know um on social media that are doing you know protective covid magic and like oh well no i did my my covid protection ritual so i'm good i don't need an, uh, a vaccine or a mask or anything no everyone's like that's doing COVID protection magic are like, I'm getting the vaccine at second it comes available. Yeah. I have 20 masks and 
there are four different types and I have my hand sanitizer and I don't let anyone come within 10 feet of me. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, there's value to, to that ritual process, even if you don't believe in magic. Yeah. It, I, reinforces things there's like funny there's like funny pictures like i see online you know like a card that says protected by the blood of christ from covid like i don't have to get a vaccine i've never seen a witch with a protected by the cauldron of caridwin you know yeah. right like that's you know maybe we believe that to some degree but also we reinforce those things with real life actions yeah exactly exactly but i mean but but we've had that pounded into our heads from the age of 14, picking up our first book of magic, where they say, okay, here's a spell to get a job, but you also have to go out and get your resumes out there so people know you're looking for a job. You know what I mean? It's no, none of our spell books are saying, well, if you do this job spell, you don't have to have a resume and you don't have to apply anywhere. Uh, a company's just going to magically know that you exist and track you down, you know? So we've had it pounded into our heads from the moment we started reading our books on witchcraft that you have to do some real world mundane actions with your magic. I will say though, that when my coven did a giant job spell and I was like to that point where I thought it probably should be writing a book. That's when I got the, the message from Llewellyn two weeks later, who we would like you to write a book. So I actually got lucky. I didn't have to do any of the extra work. It just, it, the magic actually did work. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I so, mean, there's like, but the thing is that you weren't unknown to Llewellyn. No, you know? no. I, I'd been doing the writing and the other work for quite a while. Yeah. Right. But it was, but it was really nice. It was, it was a really great little magic. Oh, movie. for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So is there anything else you want to uh, talk about? We've had like a pretty wide ranging discussion. Yeah. Right? I mean, I'm not even, I, I didn't even really keep track of time because we got started with the first video until the internet uh, cut out and had to start from scratch. So I don't even how I don't even know how long we've been talking for actually. Oh, about two and a half hours. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, it's a pretty good it's a pretty good chunk of change. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, I'm getting hungry too. So I mean, if you want to wrap up, I'm you know that's that's fine with me. Lunch lunch is calling me. There is okay. a all right. So uh, before we leave, um, um, just let everyone know um, where they can find you online. And uh, yeah. I'm easy to find online. There are several Jason Mankeys, but I show up first. If you dig deep, you'll run into one who is a Christian minister ah. so for that guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, at Pan Mankey on Twitter and Instagram, my name on Facebook and everywhere else. And Excellent. I write really well. And so the books are usually pretty easy to find. You can order them anywhere. And if your local witch store does not have one, you can ask them to order it and then you can support them and you'll get my book in the store, which is very nice. Perfect. Yeah. Excellent. And of course, for all of my regular listeners, you know 
where to find me and you know and for my not regular listeners that there's a, a link in the show notes that'll take you to all of my like my website and youtube channel and my social media so you know check out the youtube channel check out my website and follow me on twitter instagram and facebook and uh yeah so jason thank you so much for being on the podcast i really appreciate it It was a really really good talk i'm glad the the internet held out yes (laughs) for for the clarity i had a really good time i appreciate the offer and you know to be here and you know i'm an author we love hearing ourselves talk there you go I love listening to myself talk, not actually listening. Um, I, I love hearing myself talk. I don't actually like listening to the process of talking. Voice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can talk, especially about myself. I love talking about myself, but uh, like one thing like with my podcast, like I don't edit, like I hit record, I hit stop. That's what goes up because I am not listening to the sound of my voice i refuse uh on a recording not gonna happen so uh yeah there's no editing you say something that you regret on my podcast oh well i ain't bleeping it out because i ain't gonna search through my listen to my terrible voice trying to find it let's hope that i said nothing that needs to be edited out let's, let's <laughs> not put my foot in my mouth today you really didn't there was no oath breaking um so you're uh, you're all good good yeah. <laughs> excellent okay um thanks for listening everyone Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lux Files. You'll find all the guest links in the show notes, as well as the link www.laylokanzawin.com slash links. That link will get you to my page of links, where you can then go to my Laylokanzawin website, The Lux Files page, and my Laylokanzawin YouTube channel that has all the Lux Files videos. It also has all my social media links there, so you can follow me and The Lux Files. And don't forget, subscribe to the lux files wherever you get your podcasts and lastly if you enjoyed this episode please consider leaving me a review until next time